So, hey everybody, Stefan Molyneux, Freedom Man Radio. Listen, I mean, if you've been listening for a while, like you've been waiting for a while to, to come on the show tonight, I really want to apologize because it's probably going to be bad. Mike, how's your energy? <laughs> I've completely burnt myself out this week. Mike, come on. Presentations. It's, been, it's been 15 days and only 11 giant presentations. <laughs> well, who knew that, you know, China and Puerto Rico and stuff with the euro and it's all going to happen at the same time. <laughs> so I'm afraid we've we've expended our energy on our slutty mistress, the YouTube viewers, and we have none left for our faithful, <laughs> devoted wives called the Colin show caller so i just i'd like to apologize in advance and i don't think there's any way around it it's gonna suck but hopefully it won't suck like really badly <laughs> boy that's inspiring <laughs> well inspiring the show. honesty is the first virtue um that's really all i can uh, uh all i can sort of point out is that uh i don't know sorry what were you talking about Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, I'm well caffeinated, so I'll pick up the slack. All right. Um, <laughs> I, I can't do any more caffeine because I'm basically... Oh, no, the caffeine overload point. No, oh, I've been there. The, the, the arc of there. the show, like the apogee of the show has been reached because at this point I'm simply peeing good old Colombian into a cup, adding a smidge of cream and recycling because that's basically where I'm at biologically. Oh, dear. So... uh we did say we were going to pump you full of caffeine for the Euro presentation, which everyone should check out, by the way. Just got that one out. Yes, and to our French listener, I'm sorry. Who's actually the first caller for today? We were just talking if we had any French listeners which would be offended by our, her well, not my, but our horrible uh, French accent within the context of the Euro show. And we have a I appreciate you attempting today. to take the bullet, but I think. <laughs> I think everyone knows where that comes from. For a man with the last name of Molyneux. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, first day is Tiago. And Tiago wrote in and said... In what? The French guy, Tiago? <laughs> Are you yeah. sure you've got this? Did you immigrate, Tiago? <laughs> we don't know. My mother is Brazilian and my father was French. So it's God. a bit of a mix-up. More goddamn French raping of... <laughs> <laughs> South and Central America. <laughs> you know, if it's not the Spaniards. Anyway. <laughs> All right, well, low quality, remember? <laughs> well, welcome, Diego. I'm sorry that you, you came on a burnout night. Um, so please reassemble this show to approximate something helpful in the future. We'll give you the raw file. But, uh, I'll try. All right. Well, Tiago wrote in and said, in France, there is a very important exam, which is not very popular internationally, but nationally, it's huge. Every year, the media spends days talking about it. It's mainly talked about because it's a tradition, but also due to its immense difficulty. The exam very well may be the hard hardest exam in the world for students in the 17-18 age range. But the exam in France used to be like a real diploma, as in you could get a job out of it. Now it's become more of a rite of passage and has no valor. So the question that's been asked regularly in France is simply, is it worth it? Students spend many days at the library. The stress that accompanies the exams is massive because if you fail, you have to redo the whole year and risk failing again. However, for some, the exam is supposed to be about something that teaches the student things that are essential for their lives, notably philosophy, where you have to learn about the 22 chapters, about consciousness, about perception, time, existence, desire, art, language, technique, history, religion, <laughs> the list goes on. It also teaches a student about the most important philosophers. 
So right. the question is, in education, what should be considered harsh or too difficult, and what should be considered necessary? Well, hang on a sec. So, first of all, they, they teach them a lot about philosophy, do they? <laughs> that's the idea behind... <laughs> Not the I foundation mean, of the euro or economic policy, but that's... No, a, do they say taxation is theft? Uh, do uh, they ever deal with anything like that? Or is it all like, what is time? If I push a galatoire up my nose and it comes out of my ass, have we moved backwards in time? <laughs> right, I mean, this this... Like, is it just French bullshit, or is it, like, actual practical philosophy of value? Is it, like, uh, uh, fiat currency is, is predatory counterfeiting? Is it anything like that, or is it basically just uh, time and life? Okay, so the Americans, they are <laughs> magazines, but to us, they are... Anyway. Um, I mean, it depends on the teacher. They all teach something different. Uh, my teacher was pretty good. But I know some teachers will go for a kind of. Uh, it's it depends really. I mean, sometimes it's um, either they teach you what's necessary to get the baccalaureate, or they teach you philosophy, and then you have to, yeah, you do whatever what it needs to be done. Um, to have the baccalaureate. But even, even in philosophy, is it right that they're they're teaching different things? Mm, what do you mean? Well, so I sort of asked what philosophy do they teach, and you said they teach different things. Oh, sorry. So, yeah. I mean, for instance, at first they teach us, for an example, of course, uh, Marx. And he, we were taught about his ideology, but then we, when you go uh, further in the, in the philosophy, a few months after, you really realize is uh, Marx, Marx's ideology a real philosophy since it's determinism and thus it doesn't really live for, you know, freedom since you're not free because you're determined by, by your socioeconomic background. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what most people who labored in Stalin's concentration camps felt that they were somehow deterministically unfree. Well, it could be that. It also could be the guy with the machine gun who shot them if they tried to escape, which seems a little bit less philosophy yeah. and a little bit more hot lead. And plus, of course, Marxism has been so ridiculously disproven yeah. by uh, events that to teach it as a philosophy is like teaching astrology instead of astronomy. I mean, it's just the idea of teaching Marxism these days as anything other than a failed religion is incomprehensible exactly. to anybody with half a brain, but uh, uh, so, but so you you, you learn Marx. Uh, what else did you learn? Well, uh, Descartes, of course, and I... we saw that Descartes was um, a bit opposed with in, um, empirism from, and that's how you see how the French think and the British think, and that's how the French society is determined. Determined by Descartes, like we think, like Descartes, and the British people are empirists. Yeah, some more Hume and um, some of yeah, the more practical. Some of the Scottish philosophers, some of the more practical philosophers. So empiricism yeah. and sense data versus gymnastically sticking your head up your own ass and trying to find out if there's a story. I mean, theory is not so bad. 
I'm sorry? It, you just have to mix. Then we learned that, yeah, you can mix uh, the practical part and the theory, and it's way better than just saying, yeah, in theory, it works, or in practically, it works. Like, you have to mix up, and I forgot which philosopher did that, but, um, yeah, because I forgot most of what I learned. That's That yeah, sucks. That's but... good, right? Now, the philosophy that you learned, do does it end, does any of it inform your daily life or your your choices? Or? I mean, honestly, I, at first uh, I thought, yeah. I mean, before uh, starting philosophy, I thought, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to learn a lot of things. Then when I then when you started, it's like, oh, so we are just being taught how to pass the exam. But at the end of the year, like you can see how the ideas are conflicting, and it's really useful in the end. Oh, okay. So what do you what did you learn in the philosophy class that you find useful in your in your life? Uh, so good question. Um, like it's a British question, I'm afraid. <laughs> so I'm looking for empirical evidence for the value of what you study. But but go ahead. For instance, uh, Sartre with in existentialism. Uh, and how he speaks about your responsibilities, how you you're you're re responsible of everything you're doing, and you're not you can't blame someone else for what you did, and there's no way to escape what you did. I mean, it's not one hundred percent true, of course, but it's really useful because sometimes people just make up excuses, and you realize that even you have made up excuses for yourself because in the end. Maybe if there was some some things that have happened in the end, you made the decision, and it's only you. It's only you that is um, uh, that's responsible responsible for these decisions. Not every, not but anyone how, else. But how do they how do they square that with the determinism of Marx? Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it shows that. <laughs> I mean, Choose, like, pick one, right? I mean, either economically determined, or you're a hundred percent responsible for everything you do. I, I love the French too. It's like, can we get maybe a seventy thirty? Can no, <laughs> no, one hundred no. or zero. There is nothing in between. Like, come on, what are you Germans? So yeah. I just like, how do they square this? You are responsible for everything you do with the with the class determinism of, of Marx. I mean, that's that's actually funny because I've read. A bit about uh, Sartre, and it's really strange because uh, when Sartre was alive, <clears throat> alive, he wanted to get close to the um, PCF, uh, Parti Communiste Français, so the Communists in France, and people did, in the PCF didn't like him because, well, in the PCF everyone is a Marxist, and yeah. he's existentialist, so. In his book, he tries to explain how, yeah, okay, existentialism is about responsibility, but it doesn't conflict with Marxism. And then a few wait, wait, years is, was later, that his argument? He just yeah, like, like this complete just, opposite idea. Just exactly. you know, it doesn't conflict. And, and then a few years these later, are not the droids when, you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, exactly. And then a few years later, when the um, USSR started to collapse. Of course, he died before it collapsed, but he just said, you know, you know what? Yeah, fuck Marxism. It's shit because it's a determinism and it means that you're not responsible for what you're doing. 
So yeah, in the end, he says, yeah, at first he thought he could like kind of fuse existentialism and Marxism. I think he just wanted to be close to the communists. I don't know why he would do that, but, uh, cause they were, but they're the cool kids. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, at the time, probably bond about there and, uh, and, uh, okay, so so the existential argument that existence precedes essence, that you are 100% yeah. responsible for all of your choices without any prior influence, is obviously not valid, right? Now, you may have, people may have believed that in the past if they believed in the soul. And if I mm. remember my Sartre correctly, that was not his stance, right? He's not a Catholic or anything. Yeah. Where you, where you could say, well, you have a direct communion with God, and there's an essence to your identity. Exactly. That is untouched, hang on, that is untouched by material experience, right? Because you have this eternal soul, which cannot be harmed, which cannot be fundamentally changed. But when you rely on a material brain, your material brain can be fundamentally changed by experience, not just in terms of its configuration, mm. but in terms of its genetics, right? I mean, uh, people talking about sort of human nature and consciousness in the 1960s are like people talking about cosmology during the Dark Ages. They just didn't have the information that we have now about genetics and epigenetics and the brain structure and all the stuff I've got in Bomb of the Brain and in the Gene Wars series and so on. So uh, the idea that we're like 100% free of uh, any kind of uh, influence is obviously completely false. And of course, he's trying to influence other people. This is what's so funny, right? <laughs> you know, we, we, have, we are not subject to any... Any outside influences? I hope you'll believe this as an outside influence to change your mind on this. Right? I mean, if you're writing books, then you're trying to influence people's minds, uh, yeah. influence people's thinking, and then saying we are independent of our influences is just kind of contradictory. And so going from like the 0% to the 100% in, in the Marxist situation is, um, well, it's all just kind of silly, right? And... Uh, so, so I'm trying to sort of figure out, you know, okay, so he says be more responsible, I guess. That's not really philosophy. You can cram that into a fortune cookie, right? It's not really philosophy, but if he says be more responsible, okay, great. Push the limits of personal responsibility. I think that's a good thing to do to find out where, where the end might be. But what else have you got that um, you got from, from the philosophy that you studied that, that may have some, that has some practical value? Um, subjective views and objective views that you can't be 100% objective and you can't be totally subjective. I mean, maybe you could be totally subjective, but not objectively. You can't be 100% subjective, which is weird. Um, and we learned that with history, as in... No, no, hang uh, on, hang on. We can't, yeah. we can't go from subjective objective to history. Yeah, right? yeah. Because that's, that's, that's so, so when you say you can't be 100% subjective, okay. Um, if, if you were, you'd be speaking in a language nobody could understand, right? Yeah. Some weird thing that twins would make up with each other when they're in the crib. Uh, and if, you know, the idea of being 100% objective also wouldn't make any sense at all. Um, but can, can certain statements you make be 100% subjective. You know, I dreamt about an elephant last night. Or can certain statements you make be 100% objective? If you point at an elephant and say, look, that's an elephant, that is like an objective and true statement. So saying this is the 100%, you know, this is the extremes, right? Philosophy loves to mess around with the extremes and claim that it's doing something deep, but it's simply stating the self-evident that, that four-year-olds can usually understand. Mm. But in, 
the philosophy that you studied, was it acceptable to say that you could say some things that were true and uh, objective, and you could say some things that were subjective? Um, in other words, it wasn't everything about you 100% subjective or objective, but statements that you could make would be one or the other. Is that Was that what you got, or was it something else? As in, it's more objective than subjective? Like, I make that as it's a assumptions due to reality, and so it cannot be subjective. Okay, but if I say I like jazz, that I'm, spe I'm speaking about a subjective preference, right? Yeah. Whereas well, if I say jazz is music, then I'm speaking about an objective categorization, right? Yeah, and, and like, that's the thing with philosophy, you can still... Always, you can always find a backdoor to something. I mean, jazz is music, but hey, maybe, maybe jazz isn't music. Like, oh, the Nazis, they thought that jazz wasn't a music at all. So, you know, it's... No, no, the Nazis didn't think that jazz wasn't music. They just thought it was degenerative music. Yeah. Like when they looked at the art of the Weimar Republic, they didn't say it wasn't art. Or they'd say it was degenerative art it was it was nasty evil jewish art right and so they but they wouldn't i don't think they'd say we have to eradicate this dust storm called jazz right i mean they'd know that it wasn't a cloud or or elephant dung that it was music and they may have violently disliked it of course as they did but they wouldn't say it wasn't music they just say it wasn't wasn't elevated square jawed aryan triumphal march into poland music right well yeah if i mean if i take another another example uh at some point, when we found statues in uh, Africa, no one thought it was actually art because people thought, yeah, art, that's what is made in Europe, right? Because you can't make art and that's African statues from the tribes and stuff. And that can't be art. Wait, because... wait, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah? I've never heard this before in my life. I remember growing up, and I'm not saying you're wrong, I'm just expressing my surprise. Because when I was a, a, a kid, we were introduced to cave art, right? A cave art from tens of thousands of years ago. You know, the guys, they, they I don't know, use some sort of animal pigment or dye and, and they yeah. would daub guys running after buffalo or running after elephants or whatever. And cave art was 10,000 years or more old. And that, that was called art. So I don't know how African statues I mean, would be excluded from that. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I meant uh, at some point... We decided, yeah, art can be Africa, uh, can be from Africa, but at some point we just we were just thinking that. Uh, I think it was before the 15, no, 17th century. Uh, we didn't think that Afri there could be art in Africa. And well, that, that I, you know, hang on, hang on, made. like no art at all. I mean, no, I mean, you know, like what. People didn't consider it art. They considered it like something of a tradition and that is not contemplative. Like a craft or something, right? Hmm? Like a craft or something, right? Yeah. I mean, I will certainly say that a lot of the art that I've seen uh, in Africa, you know, um, could just be my Western sensibilities. It's pretty ghastly. Yeah. I, I mean, mean we, we, we had these African masks hanging in my... In my, ha my, my little apartment where I grew up, we had these African masks hanging on the wall. They always gave me the bejeebies. Mm. You know, the uh, grotesque. It's like, it's like the native Canadian totem poles and stuff. Like, it's just, 
it's pretty horrible stuff. And again, that just could be sort of culturally relative stuff. But I can look at, um, you know, pictures of, of Japanese art and say, wow, there's some beautiful stuff there. Netsuke. <laughs> there's mm. some beautiful stuff there. Uh, but when I look at some of the other art from what would be termed more primitive cultures, you know, it's it's not exactly the Sistine Chapel, a lot of that stuff. Mm. And uh, but, but, you know, it's still art. It's just what I would consider a pretty uh, rudimentary or primitive art. Yeah. Then, yeah. Okay, so, so other than categorizing <laughs> potential arts versus crafts, I'm looking for something practical you got out of the philosophy. Well, I thought the... The existentialism part was a bit interesting, but then um, there was the... Um, I forgot the name of the philosopher, which said that there are... I think it's uh, Husserl or, or the teacher that of Husserl. I forgot his name. The teacher he was of German. What? The teacher, sorry, you said the teacher of someone. I just yeah, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it because Husserl, like H U S S E R L. I don't know that. I don't know that at all. Um, Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that. It's also about responsibility. That's um, pretty much at some point when you have a choice, you have does in either way does. Uh, two options. In one way, you find excuses and you let yourself die in a way because you're not making a choice, you're not being proactive, you're not doing something that will get you out of a bad situation, for instance, and you're letting yourself die. Or you can do something about it and fix yourself and do something proactive and not wow, find so, excuses. So so in this, this, and I guess this is somewhat of a French formulation, but in this formulation, there can't be any excuses for things that go wrong, right? Like you can't make excuses, you can't cry circumstance, you can't cry self. Like there's no, there's no sympathy, right? Because everybody's, so, I mean, these guys must be totally harsh well, on like <laughs> single moms, right? They must be totally harsh on the poor, right? because the poor don't have any environmental circumstances that might lead them to have more difficult lives, so they must be totally harsh on on the, like anybody who says that that it's not that. I mean, the French philosophers must be going crazy on the Greeks at the moment because the Greeks are saying, well, you know, there's this austerity and it's terrible and it's you know it's the bankers' fault, it's not our fault, and so on, right? So this this 100% personal responsibility philosophy, these guys must be going crazy against single moms and and the poor. And, and all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, and the Greeks and anybody who's not um, taking full responsibility for their choices. I've never heard of that, but maybe I'm missing something. Depends, because I forgot to say that, but uh, for the baccalaureate, there's three different sections. There's the scientific uh, section, and the economic and social section, and then there's the literary section. The literary section has a huge uh, philosophy um, subject sec- subsection, and it has the more most weight um, in the, the exam. Like what? I'm not sure. In the philosophy, there's a literary section. Uh, no, the contrary. Like in every oh, in the literature, there's a philosophy section. Yeah. 
like in scientific or economic or literary literary does philosophy, but the way is different. For the literary, it's huge. Like it has the most weight in the the exam. So if you fail philosophy, or you've pretty much failed everything else, unless you've succeeded in your um, speciality, which is something. Well, hang else. on. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I'm really sorry to interrupt. But I made a comment, and I feel like we're not. We can choose not to answer it, but I feel oh, like it sorry. just sort of vanished. And my comment was that if the French philosophy is 100% responsibility, then they must really rail against people who claim excuses. You know, like, like single moms who say, well, it takes two to tango, or, or, or the Greeks who are complaining about austerity, or poor people who complain that they had a, a, a difficult start in life and so on. Right? So all of the French philosophers must be very uh, critical of these groups. And I've never heard of French philosophers being critical of these groups. So I'm not sure what this supposed responsibility adds up to. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that would I mean, be French why... French have a huge welfare state, mm-hmm. right? And, and they have this yeah. huge, uh, you can't fire people, you know? It's like, mm. well, isn't, if you're 100% responsible, then you get fired, so then you're 100% responsible for getting fired. So why would you have to have laws to protect you? Like, it, it seems like this 100% responsibility thing doesn't translate into anything that's actionable or practical that would, be, that would flow from those beliefs well the 100% responsibility was really mainly Sartre Uh, the one I stated was German but I mean we can see that it's it's uh, it has its effects that's would that would be why we hate but but there must be some there must be some philosophers who follow existentialism in France right Um, yeah but most of the philosophers are either really bad or dead are really unknown in France. No, I but even if, even if they're bad, right? A hundred percent personal responsibility would be you can't blame anyone else for your situation. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame society. And also, boy, if they're really into a hundred percent personal responsibility, they must really write a lot about how black people in America should just stop whining. Because it's a hundred percent personal. You can't blame slavery. You can't blame racism. You can't blame, right? 100% personal responsibility, yet I've never heard of a single French philosopher doing that. And that, that isn't like you have to be really great at your philosophy. That's just like obvious. Anytime anyone creates an ex- what, what they would term an excuse for uh, some problems in their lives, these existential philosophers should be railing against that, yet they never seem to. Well, that would be probably because right now the... The, the mood of the population is more on the left side, if you know what I mean. It's like... Oh, I know what you mean. I'm just... And first of all, philosophers should not give two shits for the mood of the population. Yeah. You well, know, the mood of the population, that's, that's the enemy of a philosopher. <laughs> like if there's one thing that you're going to rail against as a philosopher, it's the mood of the population. Mm. Because, of course, you're supposed to be promoting critical and rational thought, not, oh, they're moody, <laughs> right? Mm, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, a philosopher doesn't get to say, well, you know, I was on my period, so of course I strangled a hobo, right? I mean, <laughs> I was moody, right? I mean, the whole point is self-control and, and, and discipline and mental clarity and all that. But no, they're just a bunch of hypocrites, is I think what you're trying to say. They promote all this personal responsibility, but they don't apply it consistently with any group that might get really upset 
right? You, you can lecture a bunch of sort of white Western Europeans about personal responsibility, and they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, that's right, you know, because we're guilt-prone and, and hyper-vigilant about uh, self-ownership and stuff like that. But, you know, I don't see them going to a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of black power rallies saying that they should stop whining and take 100% responsibility and stop blaming uh, history and, and institutions for their problems, right? Because that would be a, an unpopular thing to do. I mean, you know, it does... So they're just you know? mass, mass enslaved cowards, right? I mean, isn't this like, isn't that what you learn from your philosophy class that... that <laughs> You don't actually have to live. And, and if there's massive contradictions, 100% personal responsibility, 100% determinism. You can't blame your, 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 your environment for anything. Your environment is 100% responsible for who you are. And then you can just wave this magic bullshit wand called, well, these positions are not contradictory. Uh, and, and then somehow they're not contradictory. Mm. So didn't you just learn that philosophy is complete bullshit? Yeah, I, I learned that it's, I mean, at first I thought, oh, philosophy is going to teach me what is right. And then you realize, oh, okay, so philosophy doesn't really teach anything, but nothing is right, nothing is wrong. Just go and do whatever you want. Well, um, th that's the problem, though. Uh, is that it? That's not how it. The idea that nothing is right and nothing is wrong, that's not how it plays out in reality. Like there's this yeah. weird thing that when you when you break down objective standards and right and wrong, everyone thinks that you end up with this laissez-faire, uh, easy come, easy go, hippy dippy soup of relativism. You don't. You don't. When you take down, a, it's like saying if you get rid of science, you don't get any increase in superstition. Right. If you get rid of, of rationality, you don't end up with a lot of relativism and laissez-faire and so on. When you get rid of reason, you end up fueling the mob. Right. And, and so the idea that, well, you know, there's no right, there's no wrong, there's no good, there's no bad. All that does is take conscientious people and disarm them. The mob doesn't care a bit about those things. But what they do say is, great, now my emotions are no longer opposed by anyone with intellectual authority. My passions, my hatreds, my collectivism, my bigotry, my bias is no longer opposed by anyone. No one is guarding the gates. The store is unguarded. All policemen are banished. <laughs> and, and you end up with this wild, crazy mob mentality. Right? Like, like <laughs> diversity is a strength, they say. This is one example. Multiculturalism, diversity is a strength, and so on. Multiculturalism has been showed repeatedly to cause unending social decay. Multiculturalism is so bad <laughs> that you might as well, uh, you know, have vampires pee into the water supply uh, of a neighborhood. And, and yet, you can't ever say anything about that because of political correctness, you see? So this, well, nothing is right and nothing is wrong, then if somebody says, well, diversity is, is sort of well-proven to be not advantageous, and I don't mean diversity of thought, I don't mean diversity of opinions, I don't mean diversity of arguments and so on, just radically different cultures all trying to squish in together and, and live together and so on. It just doesn't, doesn't work very well at all, according to like decades of research. But you can't bring any of that up, because apparently diversity is good, 
unless that diversity includes a criticism of diversity, which of course is the very definition of diversity. Um, and so when, when the philosophers climb down from the only job that they have, right? They, they, Jack Nicholson and a few good men, they're supposed to stand on a wall and they're supposed to turn back the mob with sternness. That's the one job that a philosopher, you turn back the mob with sternness, with your intellectual authority. Mm. That's the only job. That's the only thing you have to do. The mob is constantly boiling over, racing back and forth, uh, finding witches to burn, uh, finding um, minorities to attack, uh, whether they're racial or, or intellectual or whatever. The mob is, is this constant churn right now, right? In the future, you know, hopefully we get people to be more rational and so on. But the mob is, you know, traumatized by bad childhood, bad schooling, bad religion and so on. And the mob is just boiling over, racing back and forth, picking up pitchforks, looking to swarm someone, right? Yep. And the job of the philosopher is to stand in front of the mob like, like the guy in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square supposed to stand and say, stop, you are wrong. Go home. Put down those pitchforks. You are wrong. Stop. That is the job of the philosopher. And people suddenly say, well, if I abandon that, then everybody will just, there will, nobody will even pick up a pitchfork. It's like, nope, <laughs> that's not what happens. When the philosophers stand down, the mob boils over. And society collapses relatively quickly. And that's, that's the job. You, you stand in front of the mob and you tell them to back the fuck down, you crazy bastards. That's just, you know, I mean, uh, let me give you a, a tiny example. Like, I, I'm not just, I try to practice what, what I preach. I do my best, right? It's not always easy. But... With, um, you know, we've got uh, the race stuff in America, right? You've got Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, and uh, Michael Brown, and um, like these, these uh, terrible uh, situations, Walter Scott, is terrible situations in America. And a lot of libertarians are anti-cop, right? I understand. I mean, I, again, I get it. I get it. I'm not blind to that. But the rush to judgment in these matters, right, with the aggression of, of cops against blacks, the rush to judgment, the, the rush, the lynch, lynch mob mentality. Well, it, it's my job to say no, 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 no rushing to judgment, no calling people murderers. We have to wait until the facts are in. We have to, innocence until proven guilty is an essential element of mob combat, fighting against the mob, right? There is a due process. It's flawed. It's still government, but it had its roots in common law, so it came somewhat out of a somewhat free market of ideas. Uh, and, um, and that was very costly, right? People really got upset. You know, even people who'd been on the show who I'd sympathized with about their experience with the police, they called me, you know, racist and a cop lover. And, oh, you know, and suddenly when there's a cop involved, Stefan is all like, oh, yeah, I love the cops. You know, just this sort of crap, right? And it's just a mob. It's just a mob. And you have to, um, but you have to stand in front of the mob. 
And the reason being that, A, it's the right thing to do. Like, that's the job, right? Like, you know, in, in certain sports, there are the guys who are the... Mike, Mike, you know this, right? You played hockey for a long time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I hate to say they're the protectors, right? But they're the... the, the don't the touch enforcer. the goalie or you're yeah, going to get... Yeah, don't touch the goalie, uh, right? <laughs> you're so get laid tell out. me, like, these guys, they, they block... Anytime you touch the goalie, I mean, this was ingrained in me from like, you know, <laughs> I'm on skates, holding a chair to keep my balance. Like if anyone touches the goalie, you know, you don't let them do that. You don't let them get away with it. There must be consequences, you know, because if someone just bulls in your goalie, uh, and, you know, goalie gets hurt, got a lot of pads. That could be a big problem for the team. So if your goalie gets hurt, you're kind of screwed. So and it's, it's kind of cheating, right, to intimidate the goalie and to make him nervous. He's already right. getting a, a piece of rubber fired at him. At uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean he's yeah he's already basically think about he's already tied to a stake in a Mexican <laughs> prison system anyway, right? Patang patang. But it's it's kind of like cheating if if you intimidate the goalie to the point where the goalie feels nervous about putting up a good block, right? Uh, for for the net, that's kind of like cheating. So you can't do that. And there are other right the the, the smaller and weaker players who may be really fast. They might have enforces around them. This happens in football as well. Oh. Like you, you obviously you protect the quarterback when he's making the throw, right? And somebody tries to charge the quarterback, you you try and take them down, right? Oh, and I mean, just because hockey is more of my experience, there's a lot of finesse players that are, you know, the the centers and a lot of big goal scorers and that. And, you know, they're not very, I can't say they're very tough. They don't have a whole lot of brawn. They got a lot of speed and a lot of skill, a lot of finesse, mostly the European players, um, oddly enough. And uh, same thing, you know, if you touch one of those guys, it's kind of like the unwritten rule. If you really cross a line with a hit or something, you're you're going to face some repercussions from, you know, the C-level enforcers that are pretty much there to make sure that the, the goal scorers don't get messed with. So It's like Ugluk the troll <laughs> is released from the basement. <laughs> pretty <you know>? much. <laughs> right. And they, they rub the opposing team's jersey in, in his giant snuffling nose. <laughs> And they release him on the ice where he actually skates with the backs of his hands because they're long enough to reach down. Oh, get skater. Well, every team has at least one of those guys who he maybe plays 45 seconds each game. And it's just like, all right, you're. Get but you know what? They're always, the 40, they're always the 45 seconds that are played back endlessly in slow motion. So in terms of actual time. It's the crowd's it's favorite a... 45 seconds, oddly enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they were in that Paul Newman movie, right? The hockey movie there with these uh, the twins, right? Slapshot. Yeah, the, the, the twins. Uh, there were they three were of the, them, actually. The there were three. I'm sorry? Three of the Hanson brothers stuff, not two. You got to put on the foil, coach. You know, it's important to put on the foil. So, you know, when you throw a punch or two, it makes uh, has some extra damage in there. I know way too much about hockey movies, so I'm sorry. <laughs> now, the, my only other question is, what the fuck was I talking about before? <laughs> Responsibility consequences for bad behavior. Yeah, okay, good. Got it. Okay. And I'm sorry to, to take over this conversation. I'll be, I'll be done in a minute or two. But, um, but so, uh, you know, I, I had to uh, put this out. A, because it's the right thing to do. Like, we can't have this rush to judgment. We have to wait till the facts are in. There's a counter-narrative that may be being suppressed and blah de blah de blah right? Innocent until proven guilty and all that uh, with regards to the cops and the minorities in the states. So partly, of course, it's just the right thing to do. And I'm sorry if it's unpopular, but I get it. That's the job, right? You know, it's like you don't become a policeman and then say, well, what do you mean I have to arrest people? I, I thought stern language was going to be the order of the day. So that's, that's the gig. And you take those hits and you know that they're going to come and all that. And so I put these videos out. And, yeah, they cost subscribers and they cost listeners and they create hostility and so on. But that's the job. And the reason being, not only is it the right thing to do because we have to remind people of 
innocent until proven guilty and all that trial by media is a bad idea. That's just a lynch mob uh, on, on your screen. But also because it's really nice when people don't get fucking killed. Mm. You know, it's really, really nice when that doesn't happen. And what happens is we all know that the purpose of trawling is to attempt to get people to be averse to particular positions. And, you know, like, so so the people who are skeptical of global warming, they get a lot of trawling. Uh, and, um, and the point is to, to show as a sign to everyone else, don't fuck with the global warming stuff because we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to uh, harsh your buzz in a, in a bad way. And the purpose of trawling the police with all of this, you know, the police are horrible, racist bastards who just wake up every morning and try and figure out how they can shoot people because you know it's just so much fun when you shoot a minority in america right i mean nothing but enjoyment that's just you know that's just their way of of getting through the day darren wilson's having a great time right now great time pregnant wife uh, he's in hiding uh george zimmerman just a wonderful time great life he's uh, i think got his own talk show coming up i mean just a wonderful wonderful existence and um uh so officer slager also i'm uh, having a uh a fine old time now, I think charged with murder, if I remember rightly. So, so, uh, but the reason is that when you troll the police in this way, you know, people start to die a lot, right? Mike, if you can just look up, um, I think Baltimore or, or Ferguson. Baltimore, L.A., stands. New York City. Chicago. This has just been coming out a lot lately, especially the last couple of weeks. Just we, we just did a video talking about the decrease in violent crime over the course of the last decade and how, hey, that's something to be you know hopeful about. Like, look, violent crime is down. Well, viol- that seems to be turning around pretty severely, and it coincides with a lot of the anti-cop stuff. So cops yeah, the cops look, the trolling is working. The trolling, the yep. cops are working. They don't want to get out of their cars. They don't want to intervene with people. They don't want to chase people down. I mean, the Freddie Gray situation, um, questionable. Uh, at least there's there's questions to to be to be asked, right? This is not a cop in the middle of the night in a KKK uniform uh, shooting up a black nursery, right? I mean, well, there, six there are police, three of which, and now yeah, six and cops, three which were six what? cops are facing now. I mean, prison is god-awful enough, but if you're a cop, it's, like, staggeringly awful, right? I mean, you basically have to be in solitary for the entire length of your sentence. I mean, it's it's cruel and unusual punishment by any definition of the word. And so the cops are, are backing down. The cops are not enforcing um, as, as much as they used to. They're scared. A lot of them feel locked in. A lot of them feel like, well, this is my pension. This, And a lot of them believe in the mission. Right, they believe they are the thin blue line between order and chaos. They believe the mission, and I understand that. And don't forget too, there's a lot of cops with options that are, you know, the more intelligent cops with a whole lot of options are saying, yeah, the, the cost benefit analysis to being a cop right now doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me, and they're getting out of the field. So you're left with the less intelligent, probably more violent. It's a vicious cycle, right? I mean, you drive the good guys away, and then the bad guys take over more. And the the crime, the violent crime rates in America are undergoing at the moment a giant staggering reversal of I think about a twenty year trend. A twenty year trend in decline in violent crime in America is is and and this is as recently I think as like six to to eight months are, are they're undergoing a staggering reversal, and hundreds and hundreds of people have been murdered who statistically should not have been murdered. 
And so to all the people who just go full-on troll against the cops, the, the important thing, okay, you had your indulgence, you joined the mob, you screamed down the cops, and you have blood on your hands because you're part of the phenomenon that is putting some significantly vulnerable members of society in significant harm's way. Right? I mean, you, you can, you, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people screaming down the cops, they don't live in these neighborhoods with these gangbangers and, and drive-bys, and they don't live in these neighborhoods. So they're screaming about cop brutality, and there is cop brutality. I mean, I'm, I'm an anarchist for God's sakes. I get all of that. But this is the world that we live in, and just screaming your hatred at a particular category of people who are taught that they're good, not evil, and the result being that they back away from certain kinds of enforcement it doesn't mean that the violence goes down, the violence goes up. And uh, some of the victims, of course, are children. And the completely innocent are uh, getting gunned down in drive-by shootings and, and so on. So if you your job the is... Police, if you remove yeah. the police, it's not like you automatically get freedom. You know, it's similar to your argument you've mentioned, which is one of my favorite ones you've <laughs> thrown out over the years. You know, just because the church collapses doesn't make everyone that was formerly a churchgoer an atheist. It's well, we know this. Works. Look, we, we know this exactly because there, there's been a giant experiment that was pretty god-awful that was, occurred in the 13th and 14th centuries, which is when the bubonic plague came in through the Mediterranean on the backs of the rats, the bubonic plague spread throughout Europe, and it killed between a quarter, a third, sometimes a half, sometimes even more of the population in various areas. And the people that killed the most were the priests, because the priests were the ones who uh, would be at the deathbeds, right, the last rites and so on. And so the priests died the most and the fastest. And does anybody remember whether the, you know, say 10 or 20 years after the Black Death, I saw a massive flourishing of atheism and skepticism and science and free mind? Was there a renaissance? Was there a wonderful explosion in human creativity? No. What happened afterwards, after the priestly class was decimated, which is to some degree what's trying to be, uh, what's trying to be inflicted upon the enforcer class at the moment in America, what happened was there was a continual social chaos. Um, there was descent into a, a brutal war of all against all, uh, followed by about 300 years of religious warfare. That's what happened when a lot of priests died. Uh, so we've had a perfect example of what happens when you get rid of a particular class in the absence of the evolution of human understanding. If you just wipe out the efficacy of a particular class, you don't get liberty. You get hundreds of years of destabilization, feast, uh, sorry, famine, uh, starvation, uh, war, further disease, uh, and uh, cannibalism. And I mean, we know we've 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 seen this happen time and and time again. And um, the idea that you're just gonna let this, this, this hatred against cops, which pours out of a very black, emotional, dark place from a lot of people, which I, again, I sympathize and understand with, but the whole reason we have principles is that the mob fundamentally is not out there, it's in our hearts, and the desire to join in uh, and, and scream at the heretic and scream at the unbeliever and label them with dehumanizing names and, you know, the cockroaches that they used to call in the Rwandan massacres and so on, the... the the hook-nosed, rat-faced Jews in the Nazi uh, genocides or attempted genocides and so on, the idea to create an alien other which you can then pour 
all of your frustrations and anger and despair uh, into that other person, then join the mob in slaughtering them as if that's going to make you any freer. Uh, that, is a, that is in all of us. And it's the job of the philosopher to confront the mob in his or her own heart and then to use that clarity, that barrier to the unleashing of the darkest impulses in the human psyche. It is the job of the philosopher to stand tall against that. And uh, I believe that we've saved some lives by doing that. I mean, yes, hundreds and hundreds of people have been killed, but I think that we've helped um, keep some of that uh, back as well. You know, to a small degree, we do our part. So, uh, so that's that's the job of the philosopher. So when you say, well, you know, the common mood of the people, or the, you know, that was left, and so on. Well, that's exactly what the philosopher should always be. Exactly the opposite of where the crowd is running, <laughs> almost always, because <laughs> the crowd, the crowd will always, the crowd, many legs never run straight or true, right? The, the, the more people running in a particular direction, at least as it, with human nature as it currently stands, the more people are heading in a particular direction, the more wrong they are. <laughs> because co a clear conscience and a, a deeply rooted principles don't need social reinforcement, right? And so wherever there is a momentum of many legs in society, uh, they are heading to disaster, right? A, a, a millipede uh, always walks into the fire. <laughs> That's... Uh, uh, the only thing that I can say. So that's what I find when you talk about this uh, philosophy uh, that you were studying, and I can't for the life of me figure out, A, what, what part of it is even remotely callable by the name philosophy, philosophy, and, and, and number two, like how any of these so-called philosophers are living their values. I just want to mention a quote, too. Um, it's been attributed to Mark Twain. I'm not sure if it's actually a Mark Twain quote or just one of those internet things that tends to be attributed to someone, but the quote is, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to pause and reflect. And mm. this certainly applies well, to... I think also while we're on possibly misattributed quotes, I've heard uh, some rumblings that the quote that I and many, many others have attributed, I think, to Randy Weingarten, uh, who was one of the head of the U.S. Teachers Unions, where he said, um, I'll start representing the interests of children when children start paying union dues may be problematic. I just wanted to mention that just in passing before we go. I haven't done a huge amount of research into it, but I've heard rumblings to that effect. So. All right. So I'm so sorry, um, dear listener, for that long <laughs> uh, diatribe. But uh, to me, the job of a philosopher is the most serious job that there is. And uh, the idea that, well, you know, I wouldn't want to do anything that might upset the masses. It's like, okay, <laughs> so then you're not a philosopher. I mean, that by definition, I think. Yeah, but the issue is that, yeah, We've, we used to have a lot of philosophers, but now, well, we can see how the society is a bit degenerative and goes a, a bit against knowledge. And mostly in France, um, you can go to a university that teaches philosophy, but the issue is that you'll never get paid for that. And that's why most people don't go, you don't usually go to study philosophy. They'll never get paid. And they don't see why, they don't see how it concerns them. Even if it's useful, they just think, yeah, I could do something that's, that's going to pay me because I know right now in France, there's no real philosophers that you can really state. I mean, that are either interesting really or really known. There's only one which is really, really bad which is called uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy. 
and he caused he was the reason why France went to Libya to liberate the people, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. He's literally the reason and he's the people that he's the um, guy that you see constantly on the TV that's called that's being called a philosopher by many people but really doesn't know anything or doesn't talk about anything really i mean but, he just but no, I states mean, it, his it, opinion kudos yeah. to the french at least that they're willing to ask a philosopher what's important right yeah or what but, they should do you know i mean if there's some public health crisis then you get a public health official right a, a doctor mm. epidemiologist or whatever you when there's a public health crisis, you get get the doctor, right? Mm. Uh, and and the when there's a moral crisis, right? Then then the first people that should be on speed dial speed dial the philosopher because we've got a moral <laughs> crisis. There should be this this giant giant red you know, red whatever and not red maybe it's the color the bat phone <laughs> the bat phone like send up the signal right it's like Socrates' mm. poofy hair either some some guy in a toga I don't know right I'll just get a lot of frat boys coming too but. But you just, oh my God, society's hit a moral crisis. Call the philosopher. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would actually be a pretty funny skit, come to think of it. Um, there's only one person left to turn to. No, not, oh, not him. Guy no. with the patches on the elbows of his tweed jackets. <laughs> Get the philosopher. I think he's in the library. <laughs> And you know, you know how uh, in those movies, all oh, the guys strapping nine million weapons onto his body before heading into combat. <laughs> you know, philosopher, I have my glasses. Okay, I'm ready. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, at least in the States, uh, instead of having the philosopher to talk about the important issues, you get someone whose blonde hair is very nice and her blue eyes are very, very large. <laughs> She's pretty. <laughs> uh, I was watching. I just, I just have to say this. I'm sorry, but the, I was just watching a couple for the of, show, for the sh- for research. Yes, for the show. Yeah. yes, yes, yes. I was watching. That's some how I explain my browser about, history. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was watching some pundits talk about the Donald Trump situation, and you know, is what he said about immigrants is is there truth or facts behind it or not? And we'll talk about Donald Trump at some point in the future on the show. But, um, you know, they're having a discussion about the issues and going back and forth and presenting data and that type of stuff. It's a decent discussion, which, hey, nice to see. And then uh, a very attractive woman on the couch said, but but his hair, but look, his comb over hair. And it's just like, oh, my God, for Christ's sake, we're trying to have a discussion at the big boy table over here about facts and important things. Can we stop talking about the man's hair? We're, we're talking about illegal immigration. Is this a problem? Is there violence going on in these communities? Is this something that needs to be discussed in more detail within mainstream society? Can we stop talking about his hair? I get it. I get it. I get his hair. I get you don't like his hair. Can we talk about something important for one minute without being interrupted? Oh, God. Right. <laughs> I need a hug room. Give me a puppy. <laughs> Quick. Help. <laughs> we yell. That's how things are handled in America, but in France, most likely when someone states a valid opinion, but that is not really liked, well, mostly on the show, people are like, oh, this is a really interesting point of view, and we were glad to see on the show, and then the guy just disappears, and you never see him on any TV show again, and he's literally dead. 
that had uh, that has happened a few times in France. But yeah, it's the mob effect. I think, like you said, people get mad, and the the more people there is, the less reason there is in a mob, and that's what's prevailing right now, mostly in France, because it's really contradictory, since we have a lot of things in the government which is really, well, you could say existentialist, because. France, deep down, like in the hearts of the laws, it's a really um, elitist society. And the new laws are completely against that, but we are not really really uh, removing the old laws. Uh, And for instance, you can see uh, the French education is completely flawed compared to the socialist government. So right now, uh, in France, you have primary school, then college. And in college, uh, which ends like when you're 15 or 16, uh, you have to have good grades for four years, and then it will affect where you're going next. But if you have bad grades, you go to a bad school with people that have bad grades, and so you have bad teachers. So you're not going to get better, you're just going to get worse. And that's why, that's because uh, good schools will only take good um, um, students because they care about their, their rate. Uh, they only want students that they know will get the baccalaureate at the end of the three years you have in the lycée, which is after the college. And it's completely opposed to what we're going to right now, which is, oh, you know, it's not really your fault. Well, it's society that's this way and you can't do anything. You, it's, um, it's the fault of the white people because it's, you're getting oppressed and that's why. I mean, in France, we don't have that thing yet where we don't have the white privilege thing. I don't, it might not arrive in France because of how we think, but it might. Uh, Oh, like the white privilege that, like, somehow in white countries, there's white privilege. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's weird because, I mean, I would imagine that in, in Japan, there is Japanese privilege. In other words, people who grow up in that culture, who natively speak that language and so on. You know, they probably have some advantages as opposed to people who uh, don't. Yeah, and uh, so it's it's just I don't know this idea that there's white privilege. I mean, I I don't know who people to go. They go to Uruguay and they say, well, you know, in Uruguay there's Uruguayan privilege. The people who are born <laughs> there seem to do better in that culture. You know, in China there's Chinese privilege. All those people who speak Chinese and look Chinese have an easier time in Chinese society. There's Chinese privilege. Like, no, it's always and forever this just stupid, boring, repetitive focus on white people, and it's like, oh, God, how boring, how dull, how ridiculous. I mean, just so. I mean. <laughs> stupid ideas die when people just yawn like it's not even like worth fighting it you know like the number of times that people say 
oh yeah, well you're really sympathetic to Dylan Roof and you go into his childhood. How about going into the childhood of a black kid? And it's like, <sighs> I actually did that, right? I, I did the truth about Freddie Gray. And, and of course, but, but people, they just, it's just this assumption, right? It's just this boring, oh yeah, white people are racist and there's white privilege and it's just, oh God, you know, <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. I mean, in Saudi Arabia, there's Saudi Arabian privilege. <laughs> Like, you know, yeah, I get it. You grow up native to a particular culture, a particular country, you got some advantages. But still, yeah. people people want to brace white privilege to get here, right? I mean, there's this god-awful thing that goes on. Like, 80% of the women coming across uh, the south uh, border from Mexico to the U.S. get raped. I mean, it's it's mental. It's It's horrifying. And it's like, what? It's like, is like horrible, racist, white society not fun to see from a distance? Like you're willing to get an 8 out of 10 chance or a 4 out of 5 chance to get raped? You want to come see white privilege up, up close? That's how god-awful white privilege is? Is white privilege like the giant dinosaur exhibit in Jurassic World? It's like that's, you got, I'm willing to risk death to see a dinosaur that cool. It's like, is white privilege so enticing to everyone that you're just willing to swim? Like like here in, um, uh, in there's these Pan Ams going on. In uh, in Toronto at the moment, I didn't even know. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. I didn't even know. And um, a bunch of Cuban rowers just defected. They just they were allowed to walk around, and they just they just defected. They they absconded over to the to the U.S. Right? And see, they've got Cuban privilege by being from Cuba, but they're willing to give all of that up because apparently white privilege is like fucking Captain Ahab and his white whale. You know, I am obsessed. I must get close to it. I must find it. And it's like, I can't see it from here. Let's get closer. Let's get closer. White privilege. It's moving through the... Whoa, that is some really white privilege. Maybe we give that guy a little bit of uh, bronzing or something like that. But, I mean, they, these guys, they like walked away from their family, from their history, from their culture, from their island, just to get uh, right up, right up, nose up, in an, a horribly racist and exclusionary society like America. I mean, that is like, white privilege has got to be like some weird snake charmer that draws people in. They're like the sirens in the ancient Greek mythologies, right? They just, they say, white privilege, you've got to come and see it. Don't see it from afar. Come and touch it. Twirl its nipples. Bring some ice. Like, that's, you, you just got to be like, we've got to be like, the white privilege sirens just drawing people from around the world, Vietnamese boat people and Cuban refugees and, and the white privilege. My God, don't the people coming over from Libya and Tunisia into, into Italy and Greece know that they're entering into the god-awful nightmare snowy hell of white privilege? My God, don't they understand that they're just going into institutionalized racism and a living horror to which anybody with even three freckles is just cast down into the pit of perfidy forever? Perfidy forever? I mean, it's just so bizarre that everyone comes, not everyone, but a lot of people come over and scream, white privilege, white privilege, white privilege. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's rude. You know, if I can't imagine if I wanted to go and move to Japan that I'd go over and just start screaming at Japanese people that there's Japanese privilege. It's like, mm. you're here, aren't you? I mean, isn't this the best place to be for you? If, if this is the best place to be, then, you know, shut the fuck up and be a little polite. You know, I mean, these are some pretty still great countries. You know, the world, the world is not, as a whole, 
America or, or, or Canada or Australia or New Zealand or any of the other white Anglo-Saxon-derived colonial entities. The world as a whole is not Western Europe. The world as a whole is Darfur, right? The world as a whole is, is Yemen. I mean, and it's Zimbabwe. And like, these are just generally terrible places. And no, it's not the fault of white privilege, not the fault of white people. And so there's some pretty great countries. And, and if I, you know, I just, I can't imagine working really hard to, to try and get an invitation to someone's party and then just going over and taking a long, slow dump into the punch bowl. Like, that would just seem to me to be kind of weird. You know, like, man, I'd do anything to get to, to the, the great Gatsby's party. Great. Now I can take a shit on his wedding cake. <laughs> That's horrible. And I just, you know, because the, the one thing that's true of the people who've left, wherever they're coming from, is they're not staying and fighting. You know, obviously this, the situations in their own countries are unbearable, right, to the point where they're willing to just leave and whatever. I mean, god-awful things going on in Mexico to the point where people just are willing to risk this, like, god-awful things. Now, the one thing we do know is that they're not willing to stay and fight. They're running away from their problems. No. I'm not blaming them. I'm not, but this is a fact. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's a bad decision. I'm not saying I would make a different decision. But the basic reality is that they are running away from their problems. They're not staying and fighting. And there's a place where there's sanctuary for them. And, you know, if, if a giant Arthur Dent-style asteroid was about to hit the Earth, and space aliens came down to my house and saved all the free domain radio listeners I have packed in freezers in the basement in case of just <laughs> such an emergency, especially the casket-marked fertile uh, women, Thor, in case of asteroid emergency. Um, and, and let's say that all my friends and, and family were, were saved by space aliens from certain death from an approaching asteroid. And, I don't know, give, give me the name of an alien race. Martians. Nah, something more imaginative. Something funnier. Amuchi pineapple head. Amuchi pineapple head. I'm with it. Okay. <laughs> Amuchi pineapple head, right? So they have just saved my life and the life of my friends and the life of my family, and they have saved earthly culture, you know, such as remains in our heads and hearts, right? And they mm -hmm. took me to this glorious planet where virtually limitless opportunities and a completely free market, and I just sat around on a street corner screaming, Amuchi pineapple head privilege! You racist bastards! Institutionalized! Interspecies racism and Moochie pineapple head privilege. I mean, wouldn't people say, uh, <laughs> you know, we saved you, right? I mean, you know that, I mean, should we put you back into the giant cloud of vaporized rock that your fucking planet was? Would you like to go back there? Stop being annoying. Just be a tiny bit grateful. We, you know, went out of our way. We picked you up. We beamed you on board. We didn't anally probe you. Uh, which is, you know, a first for us, according to most residents of Arkansas. Just, you know, little gratitude. Little, look, I'm grateful. I, I, I didn't even make the West, obviously, right? I mean, I'm trying to extend it a little further, but I'm, I'm grateful that 
the ancestors of these lands did all of these amazing things to carve out a little bit of freedom from the dim, dismal, blood-soaked tapestry of gore known as human history. Yeah, they did push back the darkness a little bit. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what they did. But the idea that there's this sanctuary, this place where people can come and live lives of unimaginable freedom compared to where they came from, and then they, they scream what, right, white privilege, well, it's the pineapple head planet. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm glad they saved my ass. I'm not sure that I'm going to scream at them for being bigoted uh, if it's not that easy for me to adjust to living on a planet full of people whose heads are, in fact, fruit. Um, so, anyway. I on just... that note, Steph, have you heard of the new MTV show, which is coming out later this month, called White Privilege? Wait, wait, Mike, Mike. <laughs> You know that there's supposed to be a sound when I'm supposed to assume the philosopher's brain splody head crash <laughs> position. Hang on. Hang on. I've been working on my yoga moves, so I might be able to get my head this far uh, where it needs to go. Okay. Hang on. Wait. Almost ready. Did you know anything about this? Because we haven't talked about it yet. Uh, I, yeah. I think we're going to have to do a review. But I, I do know that it's, it's marketed at younger people. Uh, I, I don't know necessarily about that, but I just – I love the MTV. fact it's being produced. Well, yeah, but – it's being produced by a Pulitzer Prize winning Filipino journalist who's in America illegally. <laughs> oh, is this a show called White People? White Privilege is the name of the show. White Privilege is the name of the show. Oh, no. It, right. Oh, sorry. It is actually White People. It's not White People. people. Yeah, I think I saw it. So I just, I just love the fact that uh, <laughs> someone's in the country illegally to do a show about white people. I, you know, I, oh, I imagine I, you know, if I, I went I to Mexico it's... and I did a show called, you know, Brown People or Mexican People that yeah. was uh, in any way, shape or form not positive towards them, I'd probably be one of those people that's beheaded and hanging from an underpass like, oh, so many that cross the line of the Mexican cartels. But in America, you know, you're going to get yeah, listen, I mean, we've talked about this before. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but. You know, white people have a really bad habit of being overly nice and then overly not nice. Mm. Bad habit. Like, I tell you this. I remember years ago, I went with um, a girlfriend to go and see uh, a show, uh, a play uh, in Toronto. And I was walking up. It just, just went and, and got in the line. I thought I was in the line. You know, there are always these jerks. Let me tell you something. <laughs> there are always, this, is, this is the only thing that really bugs me about the world. You know, everything else is fine. But, but whenever there's, like, l let me tell people something. Okay, listen, you need to understand this basic 101 of human decency. When there is a line, be in the line or don't be in the line. But don't fuck around at the end of the line, just milling about. Because then people have to come up and say, are you in the line? Are you not in the line? Am I budding? Am I not? Just be in the line or be somewhere else. There's a line and then there's not a line. But don't be this cloud of vapor around the end of the line that nobody knows where the end of the line is. Anyway, so I went up and I got to the end of the line. And it turned out there was a British couple behind me. And what did they say? Did they say, hey, the fuck out of the line. Stop budding. Get out, right? And I said, I must, I say that's a bit much. But the way they said it, it was like, <laughs> there's nothing like that British ice spear of superiority that goes straight through your heart. At least if you're from England. French people don't give a shit. But <laughs> Oh, British disapproval. 
No, it's British disapproval. I grew up in boarding school, so British disapproval usually came with a cane at the end. Oh. But there's nothing like that. Oh, I say that's a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> Just like, oh God, right? And um, I, that's like that was that was. I, I remember this years later, and I remember thinking like, wow, what an effective method of social control. I feel terrible now. Mm. Whereas they're the ones who were at fault because they weren't in the line or out of the line. They're just billing about. Oh, yes, I'm supposed to know. <laughs> Whether you're seeing the show or not, or you're just hanging around, just driving me completely insane with your non-commitment, non-non-commitment to, uh, to the line. And, uh, yeah, you know, um, uh, wh white people as a whole, you know, we're like all apologies, and then it's like two fucking nuclear bombs. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. like, can we find something in the middle here? A little assertiveness. Uh, without necessarily having to go, you know, full Nagasaki on people. Um, and, you know, like, it's like the Chamberlain to Churchill, right? Chamberlain was this British politician who appeased Hitler throughout the 1930s. Oh, I've secured peace in our time. Oh, let's not worry about that funny little Austrian man. I'm sure he's going, ah, right? And then, you know, he was just appeasing, 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 lets him take all these various territories and countries and so on. And then the British people are like, oh, shit, in case of emergency, break alpha. <laughs> We need to we need to have a full K backup coming out of the Madame Tussauds <laughs> Wax Museum. Quick, get Churchill. And Churchill is like, ah, oh, I do love me some war. And, Ch and Churchill is like, I think we will bomb them until most of Germany is dust. I want it to be floating above the landscape. That's what I want for Germany. And they will like literally bomb the living shit out of Germany. Uh, whereas in the First World War, they didn't even bother invading because the Americans came and tipped the balance so far. But in the Second World War, they, they get rid of like our selected Chamberlain. I actually had a whole bit. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, I did this bit, right? Our selected Chamberlain, and they put K-selected Churchill in charge of things. And uh, Churchill was just like, oh, yeah, time to roll. <laughs> he loved war. Like he, he said, God help me. I'm just filled with the most unholy enthusiasm for this grim venture. You know, I mean, uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, everyone looks at like the Chamberlain white people up front and forget that there's an emergency K backup white people that, uh, you know, tend to go, I don't know, hard to say whether they go too far into another extreme or not, but... Uh, I'd like a know, healthy uh, medium of assertiveness, healthy assertiveness before... Well, that's, yeah, because you, um, you only end up with, with, with Churchill because of Chamberlain, mm -hmm. right? And this is what bothers me about these philosophers who don't oppose the mob. It's like... You think it's going to get easier? Yeah. Right? Do, do you think the mob is going to be like, get bored and disperse? <laughs> I mean, do you think they go, oh, 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 hang on, guys. Sorry. VCR is broken. I, I'm, <laughs> it's not recording. I just got this message on my, I got to go. I got to go. <laughs> I mean, The Apprentice, you know, season 23,000 is on. Got to watch it. It's not recording. Can't fix it from here. No, nobody, they're not going to just disperse. The mob feeds on itself and and the mob feeds on its victims and appeasement creates more bullies so this is the weird thing it's like did what do people think like the the, the clash between islam and the west do people think it's is it going to get easier later is it like what what do people think is it is it somehow going to well you know they have been doing this for quite some time but I'm sure they'll get bored of it soon. Yeah, they'll tire themselves out. It's all right. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Plus their knees hurt. You know, all that kneeling. And, and oh. so, you know.
Later. Next. Nah, it's fine. I'll deal with it later. You know, it's like it's like having some giant lump growing in your chest. You know, it's like ah, you know, I'm sure I'll you know I'll just jump up and down a little bit and it'll probably dissolve. It's like it does not get easier later, right? The longer you leave it, the worse it gets, and that's what bothers me so much, in particular about these supposed philosophers who should be standing in front of the mob, and uh, you know. Oh, imagine stuff the if there dogs. was. We are the sheepdogs of the like carnivorous sheep known as human humankind at the moment. Sorry, Mike. Well, imagine if, you know, after the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman thing, there was a big uprising where people said, hey, you know, the fact that the media digitally whitened George Zimmerman's photos and edited 911 call tapes to make him sound racist and make him out to be, you know, worse than he was within the context of this situation. If there was showed a picture of a 12-year-old. Yeah, versus like a 300-pound photo of uh, George Zimmerman looking all kinds of tough. If people stood up and said, you know, this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable at all. We're not going to stand for this anymore. We're not going to buy any products that's advertised on whether I forget which company, uh, MSNBC. I don't want to get that wrong. I think it was MSNBC that did yeah. a lion's share of it. You know, we're not we're not going to buy any products from anyone that advertises on MSNBC. We need a formal apology. This this can't continue in the media. If that type of assertiveness happened then. What would have happened in the Michael Brown situation? Would, and what would have happened to the you know dozens of of kids and hundreds of people who've been murdered in the streets as a result of police paralysis? Yeah, exactly. Well, it would have been a very different uh, a very different situation. The other thing too is that you know this fear, this like weird fear. It's not that weird a fear, but this fear that everyone has of being called a racist. I mean, is is clearly screaming racist is is not a civilized way to have a discussion it it's it's a pathetic immature and unless there's clear evidence that someone's a racist unless right? you're it's wearing really, a hood at the time that they're calling yeah, you or racist. you know like unless someone has publicly stated i hate x y a b c or whatever for no whatever yeah. right okay but so but but do people think that if we back away from these topics for fear of being called a racist that things are going to get better, right? Like somebody asked Eric Holder, right? The, I can't remember if he's half black or black, uh, but, but he was the high up in the Justice Department. I asked Eric Holder and he said, well, okay, so it's been, what, 20 or 30 years of affirmative action. Like, when do we wind this shit down, right? And he's like, oh, we barely, we, we barely even scratched the surface. We've barely even begun in, re, in, the, in terms of affirmative action. And it's like, oh, Really? <laughs> so, wait, you say there's a government program that's not going to end? But, uh, I mean, this, like, the idea that, like, if we're just not going to have honest conversations about race, I mean, uh, because of fears of being called a racist, I mean, just the, at some point, we, we're going to have to bite this bullet. We're going to have to start having honest conversations about race, and we're going to have to put aside our fears of being called a racist, and we're going to just have to deal with the facts. And the facts are fairly clear and fairly evident. We've talked about this on the show a bunch of times. But this hide, just extend and pretend to hide, duck and cover stuff. I mean, it's not. It's not going to get easier because all it does is it puts the verbal bullies, largely from the left, in charge of the conversation. And when the left is in charge of the conversation, soon they're in charge of the country, and you know, large numbers of people um, don't breathe anymore. That's just a sort of basic fact. Anyway, I'm sorry. I know we've drifted a lot, and <laughs> my apologies to the caller. It yeah, it's fine. It's, as long as it's interesting. 
but um yeah i mean uh there's something also that you kind of pointed out that i found some that i found to be interesting in philosophy because it made me think is that we are kind of heading to a society where we are being taught to not be someone with an opinion or someone with that can survive as in let's imagine tomorrow my government collapses because well first of all it's bad but <laughs> um let's say it collapses what's going to happen to the people who are, who are pretending to be oh i'm dragon king yeah yeah go ahead be a dragon king about, uh, against that scavenger who is going to loot your house I mean, I don't know if you... Wait, what do you mean by Dragon King? Yeah, Dragon King. Like, people who are pretending, they say that there are, they are, they are inside them. They feel like they are actually dragons and they are not people. Like, you know, the people from Tumblr who are... Um, I, I look it up, maybe, but... Um, Urban Dictionary, I, I Dragon King. Tumblr, sorry. <laughs> Urban Dictionary, Dragonkin, one whose spiritual form is that of a dragon. I don't know what that means. What? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Is one this a Game of Thrones episode? A crazy person. <laughs> is this like yeah. My Little Pony with fire? I, like, I don't understand what this is like, your spirit animal? I mean, what is it? You're oh. familiar? Dragon? <laughs> Tell me. I, I don't know anything about Tumblr. What is that? Is that like um, monkeys it's, in a circus? Well, it's a place where stupid people get ideas I oh think. reality okay got it. <laughs> got it got it got it other people humanity carbon-based life forms the media okay got it hang on tum i've heard about it i just didn't know what okay tumblr what is what um is i mean I the, the dragon king thing is related to something called other king you you can look it up and that's when it gets a bit scary but it's Other also kid. like the trans um, transracial people. Like they say that, yeah, I'm white, but deep down I feel like I'm, I'm black. You know, that's that's also what what they say. Or that if you're wearing a an Afro um, haircut, well, that's cultural cultural appropriation, and you can't appropriate the culture of the African people. Because yeah, no, I mean you'll notice this a lot, of course, with people who like they appropriate freedom of speech and civil yeah. liberties from white people, but somehow that's not cultural appropriation, right? Because the yeah. really important thing is your fucking hairdo, right? Yeah. Not whether you have, say, separation of church and state, uh, and not whether you have, say, a dictatorship or the remnants of a uh, limited democracy. Uh, so they'll take all of that cultural quote heritage from Western Europe. Uh, that's not appropriation somehow, but a hairdo really matters. Okay, I need to read this uh, Urban Dictionary section on Otherkin, just because, well, I just need... Wait, Otherkin? Otherkin. Um, the caller said Dragonkin is similar to Otherkin, so I had to find out what Otherkin was. Otherkin are a fringe group of human society who, for one reason or another, believe themselves to be the reincarnation of mythic creatures, typically elves. Through other groups, also include dragons, demons, vampires, ogres, deities, and so on. And sensible leftists. 
Relate, related groups also include some long word I can't pronounce who believe themselves reincarnations of animal souls. Hey, Mike. <laughs> hey, if I have to do Greek names to your presentation, you back the fuck up and you hey, do that name. You should see the ones I've omitted just for your sanity. So it's <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Seems like someone just opened the phone book and picked something horrent and then added three together. Um, Maybe they just fell asleep and their forehead hit the typewriter. <laughs> That's my name, right? Is there supposed to be that many S's and P's in a name? I, I don't know. Oh, come on. Okay, give it give it to me in, in, in Skype. Okay. Here, I, I, I'm barely good with English name pronunciation. I, I don't know about this. I, I managed to make it through the uh, gene stuff without embarrassing myself too much. <laughs> Well, you're a professional. I'm. I'm still. Uh... <laughs> wait, wait. Which one did you put it in? Should be in your account. I'll put it in both, so you can see. All right, hang tight. It's coming. Anyway, so. Uh, oh wait, here it is. Therianthropes. Therianthropes. Something. <laughs> and that, then there's other people who think they are reincarnations of fictitious characters from Japanese anime, manga, and video games. Do you think any of these people are fictitiously confusing themselves with people who ought to have, say, a job? Because <laughs> I, I can't imagine this is, like, highly employable stuff. Steph, are we hiring any vampires right now? Are any, uh, any, any reincarnated dragons? Is, do you put that on your job application? I, I don't know. Um, okay, get it. You had a bad childhood. Uh, and escaped into myth. Okay. Other can often find themselves the subject of ridicule. In the majority of cases, it is because their beliefs fly in the face of rational, critical thinking and tend to fall apart very quickly under hard scrutiny. I don't know that we need Wait, to get... they're not like people who like, I like unicorns. They're people who like, I have the soul of a unicorn? Yes. I believe so, yes. Okay, I gotta, I gotta just ask one basic question. How pretty do you have to be <laughs> for anyone to take that seriously? <laughs> Okay, big tits. Could be two unicorns in there. Don't care. Tits. I mean, like... The how... rational calculation that's being made. Okay, she's an eight, but she's completely insane. Mm. Mm. Well, I am into banging horses, and <laughs> she has a soul of a unicorn. Oh, man. Well, my dad was an equestrian, so I guess I kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have you to come with a saddle. I'm, I'm sorry, I have to keep going. <laughs> One of the most common beliefs is of an elven holocaust in which humankind supposedly wiped the elves from the earth, despite the fact that no such evidence <laughs> exists anywhere on the geologic record, either for the supposed Wait, holocaust, let alone the existence like of elves. Genocide? <laughs> yes. They not seen Broadway? I think. <laughs> Just watch a Lord of the Rings movie. I, that would qualify. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, this uh, this is a thing apparently. This oh yeah, it's big. I love the I love the aspects of the show where it's both enlightening and god awfully depressing at the same time. Yeah, and but... they vote. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most of them are hiding in their plants' basements, I think. But um. Yeah, that's the place no, where probably I think forest, that's but I know what you mean. Yeah. That's the same people who are against like fat shaming uh or stuff like um wait. Oh yeah, triggers. Sorry, yeah, triggers, oh, trigger yeah, yeah. warnings. Trigger. That's probably where it came from also. It's 
it's literally hell hell i think i mean to me i i tried to go there and it's so stupid i wonder if some of these people are reincarnated elves and not reincarnated elves at the same time that's uh Wait, sorry. Call back. Oh man, that's that's that's. I mean, it is obviously funny, but it's it's pretty tragic. I mean, gosh, what must have happened to you in your life that that's where you end up? Well, it's funny because some sometimes they just they disagree with each other and they think, well, deep down I'm black because I feel like I'm black, and then someone. But that's cultural appropriation. You can't say that you feel black because you're white and you have white privilege. And they just go arguing with themselves about things that are just. It's, it's like uh, blind people arguing about what blue looks like. In yeah, no, I mean, when when um, political correctness collides with insanity, uh, you know, it is well, it's dragon versus unicorn, right? I mean, uh, it is pretty, uh, pretty horrendous. Yeah, I just I just found this this woman. Um, Although my skin is human and my wings are in my mind, my soul is ancient splendor and my heart was forged in fire. And she's really pretty. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, okay, crazy eggs are still eggs. <laughs> crazy omelet is still food. Oh, there's, there is, really is a dark comedy in this kind of stuff. Because some of it is so absurd, it's hard not to chuckle. Like, for example, you'll, people will see in the Greece presentation that I'm working on now. I mean, <laughs> the actual origins of the Greek financial crisis go back to the 80s. We have a chart where there's a massive spike in inflation in Greece that's just absurd. My question was, what happened then? That's kind of an interesting question. It appears something occurred. Well, they elected a socialist that decided to buy everything and turn it into a socialist utopia. And uh, just looking at this and then, you know, here we are, decades later, and Greece is in a massive financial problem. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, and no one is talking about this fact. No one even recognizes that, hey, maybe electing a socialist that just went and ran up the credit card to an absurd degree, I think to a larger degree than any other one, any other politician in the history of mankind from a proportion of GDP for a country, that that might have an impact. No, it's, you see the banks lied to the Greek people or it's IMF or something. And I, I'm sure the IMF, there's lots of problems with the IMF. I'm no doubt in my mind, but maybe it has to do with electing the socialist several decades ago. I, I don't know. But it's just a dark comedy looking at it. It's like, this is so absurd. I can't help but laugh. This means that people are growing up in poverty now. You know, people that don't have futures because their parents spent their, uh, their seed crop. Yeah, well, it's the issue with left-winged um, governments do during crisis. Why would you go in a way that, like, why would you increase welfare when you're in deficit? You should go the other way. Because they want votes. Because, they yeah. want votes. People and, like and it people when you give them become, stuff. They love yeah, it. People have become fundamentally allergic to reality. And... Um, you know, I, this is again. I the only way that I can really frame it is is these gene gene wars, right? I mean, these the genetic expressions of of ideas. Uh, it's a fight to the death, and uh, it's uh, you know the idea that a Greek politician. I mean, what would what would happen if if you basically just said to the Greek people, "Look, party's over. You you all knew it was coming. Like, please don't be, please don't be surprised, right? Like right now, 
they are uh, burning down parts of Athens because they've run out of money. That's what happens. Yeah, no, and I know, and I was chatting says, about my daughter, but, you know, and now. I go through the news with my daughter, and, uh, you know, she's really been saving up her money, and for a while she was interested in buying a little video game, handheld video game unit, and, um, you know, we, we talked about it, and um, I said, you know, if this one more tablet comes in the house, I'm not going to go post it. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, it's another but no, and we talked about it, and, and she ended up not buying it. And I said, okay, well, um, so if, if like, like I said, you know, Izzy, like if you had decided to buy that tablet, uh, and then like a month later you realized you don't really playing with it, it's not really fun, it's not, you know. And, and you had to, we went over sort of buyer's remorse, like you buy something, then, then there's a high, and then after a while you're like, ah, you know, was that really worth it? Or, you know, I, you think of all the other things you could have done with the money and this and the other, right? And I said, so imagine you bought this, you ended up deciding to buy it. She saved her money instead. She said, you decided to buy this thing. About a month later, you, you feel disappointed and upset because you spent your money on the wrong thing, and now you don't have the money, and you're not really enjoying what you bought. And so what would your response be? And she said, well, I would do more chores to get more money so that I could build up my savings again. I'm like, no, you say that because you're not Greek. If you were Greek, you'd, you'd set fire to the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are, uh, I just looked at the news right before the show, things are heating up. Like literally. Literally some, some heating pop, up. Some pop dancing away from these Molotov cocktails. You can burn someone's skin off with that stuff, like this this homicidal. Uh, it's it's not good, and it's not going to get any better, unfortunately, short term. I'd love to go to Greece, man. I'd love to go to Greece. German? Are you cold? It's not. You've... It's not winter. I know. I just. I just. I'd love to. Fire. I'd love to ask the kind of questions that would get me punched in the head. <laughs> I just donate. I would, so we I can get stuff cool. bodyguards, so we can go to Greece. <laughs> I just duck and weave and ask some basic questions, like. Have you passed grade two math? Did you not know that you can't borrow and spend forever? Like, what did you think? Did you think that the deficit was a unicorn? I mean, is it a myth? Is it? Like, I don't understand why. If any country you, you, should you, have you, a philosopher getting out ahead of the mob to tell them about economic realities, you'd think it'd be Greece. But uh, yeah. well, but there is a time after which philosophy <laughs> is no longer helpful, right? I yeah. mean, because the mob. I think at this phase, like as you say, this has been building since at least the Second World War, and you could argue further back even than that. So this this just going to have to run its course. Yeah, this is like one of those, you know, in like the in the nineteenth century or eighteenth century novels. There's always some girl who gets sick, usually because she disobeyed someone, but she gets sick, and the doctor comes over and says, "We just have to let this run its course. There's no medicine for this, right? Because they didn't have any antibiotics and all that back then." And that's the way it is with certain – there's a time up to which you can stop the mob. And then there is a time after which you cannot and you must just flee the mob, right? It's like an avalanche, right? I mean if you see the first couple of snowflakes start to rumble, maybe you can stop them. But once half the mountain's coming down, you just got to get out the way. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately though, it's uh... – if you still believe the cause is evil bankers, which there's a whole lot of evil bankers, don't get me wrong, we just did a massive presentation on evil bankers with the euro, and uh, if you don't look at your own spending and you think you have an answer to a problem that's not the real answer, the fundamental answer, which is that violence doesn't work, socialism doesn't work, they're just going to repeat this for the next how many generations. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> you ever open up your mail and there's like a zero APR financing for 18 months, followed by 9,000% <laughs> in fine print, right? But you get all this shit from the credit card companies. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll transfer existing balance, pay things off. You'll give you free credit cards, $10,000 limit. And I remember when I was a kid, not younger or whatever, right? It was in high school, in, in, in college or whatever, right? They target the college people because there's nothing that says I'm willing to take on debt and go into college. <laughs> but, um, but they, so, and a free t shirt <laughs> because you're an arts major. <laughs> because you're an arts major and can't do any math. Um, oh, but, uh, um, with a dragon on it. But, and, and so it's like if I, if I order 10 of these credit cards and max them all out, it's the evil credit card companies. Yeah, well, it was just an offer. Of course, the politicians are going to offer you something for nothing. But when did we ever, like, when did we ever lose this skepticism? Like, when did we lose this skepticism as a culture? What do you mean someone's offering you something for nothing? Give me a break. They're just, that's not right. That's not, that's not how it works. And we just completely lost this. I don't know if all the, I don't know, the case-selected people got killed in the world wars or something. That's a topic for another time. But it's like this, we just left with these people who pretend. I don't know if they're pretending or not. I hope they're pretending because they're pretending they're not. We're even more doomed than I think. But um, these people who just like reality, I mean, that's just my whim, isn't it? All right, listen, we've got to move on to the next caller. And I, I appreciate these, these questions and comments. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know if we got into anything useful, but I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, well, I was I I enjoyed the conversation as well. I just wished we could have finished the education part, but it's fine. Call back, call back in. Like honestly, let's yeah, not we'll leave schedule, that out. We'll schedule for an upcoming show again, Tiago. If you'd like to come back and we can finish it up. Well, I try, but uh, in the next month I'll be in the U.S. But I could try even during that period. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it through email and we'll set something up. Okay. And I even have to, I mean, I'll get to not have to sleep at four in the morning. So that will be nice. That would be better. Yeah. <laughs> well, so not only did we tangent you to death, but you're exhausted too. Other than that, <laughs> was a pleasant experience for you, I'm sure. Well, thanks for confirming, though, that we do actually have a French listener because as stuff during the Euro presentation, we were, we were just listener. talking about did he ever this. Back? Yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about this when you did the French accent. Do we have any French listeners? I don't. You know, Diego, if I ever have to like really annoy French people again, I'll have to have you read a speech, and then I'll just imitate you because your French accent is way better than mine for obvious reasons. Yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> Sexy, yeah. All right, man. Take care. Have a good time in the States. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. All right, thanks, Tiago. Up next is Nicholas. Nicholas wrote in and said, Do you think things like religion fulfill some emotional need brought on by consciousness? I'd assume that such a timely and costly social construct would falter eons ago if it wasn't necessary in some capacity. So I realized uh, after asking my question that perhaps consciousness uh, wasn't the best choice of words. Um, and, uh, you know, do Hello? Hello? You still there, Nicholas? Yeah, sorry. I must have uh, had an internet problem or something. No problem. Go for it. Okay, what did you hear that I've said? Nothing or? Uh, Steph, you're totally right. <laughs> and uh, 
and here's a huge donation. Um, and then we signed a contract in the blood of an elf. After that, you got a little fuzzy. Well, uh, you know, you'll, I'll have to hear the podcast on that, you know. Yeah, we may have had a few problems here, too. But it's true. No, no, no. Uh, no, but uh, anyway, you, we were just talking about, you said that you wanted to reformulate the question a little bit. Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I looked up consciousness in order to assure myself that that was the correct word to have used. And uh, I, I quickly found myself in a rabbit hole where, you know, what is consciousness? And I was like, oh, okay, I don't want to use that word. Never mind. Oh, no, uh, that's French. Right. <laughs> and so I think that perhaps a, a better a better phrase question would be, does it satisfy some... Um, does religion satisfy some necessary human emotion on a biological level? No. No, sorry. Um, to be in it. No, no, it doesn't. I mean, the, and we did, I did a whole show on this, which we didn't have release. I don't know what we're going to do with it on, but, um, but very, very briefly, very briefly indeed, um, religious susceptibility is a gene set. There are particular genes uh, or uh, gene fragments that render one to be susceptible to religious uh, experiences, religious, uh, even religious, uh, particular religious mythologies, right? Like they can stimulate a part of the brain and have cherubs dance around you. Uh, there are this feeling of oneness, this feeling of unity, that these are all genetic predispositions. And so religion's the manifestation of a particular gene set that instructs... Um, uh, children uh, in religion in an attempt to, you know, through uh, through epigenetics to to turn on the same gene set uh, in sequence. So um, uh, the re religion is a mechanism by which genes reproduce. Religious genes just think of like religion as uh, a, a body part, right? And and your liver will do what it does. What is it? Clean your blood? I don't know. But uh, the liver will clean your blood so that you're healthy enough to have sex and make another liver. And uh, religion, uh, this fairly extensive work has been done on this uh, to, to figure out that um, uh, religion is uh, significantly genetically inheritable. So, so twins raised apart often end up with very similar religious beliefs. And uh, if you have one sibling who has a particular expression of a gene set and another sibling who doesn't, then um, you know the odds of that one sibling with the gene set being religious are very high. The odds of the other sibling not being religious are very high. And this is not to say that there's no free will or reason involved. There, there are. Uh, you know, when I talk about genetics... It's just genetics, a predisposition, yeah. Yeah, I, when I'm talking about genetics, that doesn't mean, well, then we can't do anything about it. Now, it's true right. you can't talk someone into having a third eye, but, uh, you know, with epigenetics, you can uh, give people arguments that will uh, reshape their genetics, right? I well, mean, I mean, it's, you, it's no different from being having a predisposition to... Uh, having some sort of, you know, being overweight and then ensuring that you eat healthy and exercise uh, in order to try to avoid that, I think. Yeah, you know, exactly. It, if you have a predisposition, if you've got a family um, uh, history of, of diabetes, then exercise and eat well and, and at least, uh, you know, I think the type B or whatever it is that's more to do with your lifestyle choices. So, you know, we, we're attempting to genetically change the species. It sounds so eugenics-based, right? But philosophers, good philosophers, are those who effectively switch the genetics of the species to the point where the arguments no longer need to be inflicted, but rather become self-perpetuating through genetics, right? So if you uh, can um, convince a, a religious person to be non-religious, then they're going to raise their children to be non-religious. And it doesn't mean that their children will for sure be non-religious because there are genetic 
tendencies, but it will certainly increase the chance of those gene sets not being switched on through exposure to indoctrination. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's this giant, vast genetic experiment that we're not experiment, but uh, genetic work that, that's going on here, um, which is using uh, uh, arguments to reshape genetics. And um, so, you know, one, one way of looking at history, uh, and again, when I look at gene wars or the religious gene wars and so on, they're not the final answers, but they're ways that, that history can be looked at that give some clarity that um, one of the reasons we got the age of reason was because religious warfare killed off the religious gene set, right? I mean, the religious warfares that went on for 200, 300 years in some European countries, um, you know, up until the 17th, 18th centuries, killed off a lot of religious people. And uh, the most religious were the most fanatical, and they're the ones who killed, uh, got killed and killed others the most. So that gene set was largely diminished in its capacity to influence society. And, um, you know, like, I mean, if, if every Japanese person decided to commit seppuku and kill themselves, then the Japanese gene set would be pretty much wiped out, right? We'd live on in sort of others in some diminished way. And in the right. same I way, mean, that if, makes sense. If, religious, if religious, if religious warfare is, is, is always going to kill off the most religious people, and that then creates some breathing room for the skeptics and the rationalists and the scientists and the mathematicians and all that. And uh, this is one of the reasons why after the uh, religious warfare of the uh, um, middle of last uh, of the last millennia, you have the age of reason. Another, uh, uh, you know, in terms of great leaps forward in intelligence, uh, intelligence, the, the genetics behind intelligence are an incredibly, well, historically very scarce resource in in society. And the 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 Black Death in in Western Europe had a huge influence on the progression of and spread of the genes for intelligence because the, in general, the more intelligent you were, the less you were mired in the city, right? You had some country estate, you had some breathing room, you had some, you know, your own water supply and so on. And so in a very broad brush, uh, it wiped out the less intelligent and preserved the genes of the more intelligent who then bred more to fill the vacuum. Uh, and in the same way, uh, Jews were not considered to be remarkably intelligent up until a couple of hundred years ago when relentless eugenics to breed smarter Jews, in other words, the smartest uh, people in the Jewish community were often the rabbis, and the rabbis were encouraged to have the most children, and the rabbis were also encouraged to mate, not with the prettiest, but the smartest uh, hmm. women in their community. After like thousands of years of relentless eugenics to breed smart Jews, a couple of hundred years ago, they popped a baby, right? And now... Uh, Jews have, you know, at least um, uh, the Ashkenazi Jews, the, the, the non-Sephardic Jews, have what is arguably the highest IQ as a population, you know, 112, 115. And in terms, and they're shaved back in terms of their spatial skills. It's not a lot of Jewish engineers. They have slightly below average spatial skills, but language skills, it's insane, right? Like 120, 125, 130, like on average, right? And, and so uh, this... Um, Religion is, is just simply, uh, it's a gene set, uh, and, and it uses a symbology and um, resources in order to reproduce itself. So, um, that... Uh, uh, um, so, you would say that uh, religion may be a, something that helps fulfill some emotional want, but not a need, or is... Or is... No, it, it, no uh, it, it is the intellectual expression of 
a genetic susceptibility to a particular kind of experience. Right now, obviously, to some degree, religion um, is associated with insanity, right? I mean, because religion is founded on people hearing voices, right? And people reporting things which, uh, which can't possibly be true, like nobody walked on water, nobody healed lepers with a touch, uh, nobody turned water into wine or, you know, took one fillet of fish and made a whole McDonald's chain out of it and so on, right? Like, these things just never happened. And um, there, there was a guy who commented on a video a while back, you know, just saying, well, you know, you, you Steph, you got to open yourself up to spiritual experiences. You know, I myself have seen, you know, supernatural um, phenomenon that, that simply can't be explained through natural forces. you got to open yourself up to this, that, and the other, right? And, uh, you know, my sort of thought is, okay, well, what's more likely, that the laws of physics have been completely violated or that someone <laughs> is lying? Right. Well, and and yeah. now either they are lying or, or they're not. Like they genuinely believed that they like I had a friend when I was younger who says like he woke up and he saw a victor a spectral Victorian woman floating above his bed, slowly turning like a chicken on a rotisserie. And, you know, of course it's not that hard to figure out that he had a dream where, you know, you we've always had these, you know, like these switcheroos, right? Like you wake up you're in your dream, you wake up, and then you wake up again, and you just woke up in the dream, but you so he, you know, just dreamt that he was awake and saw this thing, right? But he was very committed to this actually was the case. This, this was the case. And I, I remember saying to him at the time, I said, look, this is a fork in the road, man. Like, this is a fork in the road. This is when we were teenagers. I said, this is a fork in the road. If you continue to believe that there was a spectral Victorian ghost floating and turning above your bed in the middle of the night, your life is going to be a disaster. Your life is going to be a disaster because that has such foundational metaphysical ramifications. Yeah, yeah, I talk just like every other teenager, right? But that has some, like foundational reality belief systems. Like you are going to believe in life after death. You are going to believe that there are ghosts walking all around you. Like this is, you, you, are, you are courting the derangement of your brain. You are sowing the seeds of the destruction of your cognitive faculties. You are, um, you're like a guy who's going out every day trying to lift a tractor. Like you're just, you're gonna break your back. You're gonna like literally permanently harm your body. You are trying to do something which is not healthy. This is super important. Like, the, and I, I fought with him, you know, cause you know, you have friends, you, you know, if they get a, if a log falls on them in the forest, you try and lift up the log, even if they're screaming in pain, right? You try and help them because they're going to die if they stay there. And uh, I, I really, I fought tooth and nail with this guy. Like, no, look, look at all the options. Look at the possibilities. Look at the reality. Look at, do you think if there was a camera that it would have seen it, right? Like, and, and the moment you start dodging those questions, you're training your brain to avoid reality. You're training your brain to avoid reality. Like this guy we had calling in about the God who was there and not get there. Um, I think this was in um, the last uh, last call-in show, uh, last call-in show before that. And at, like the moment somebody asks a relevant and pertinent question and people fog or avoid, you are training your brain to avoid reality. In other words, you are physically taking your brain like a stick, bending it over your knee. In the, sooner or later, you keep applying about that pressure. It's going to snap. And uh, sadly, this guy did not uh, listen to my advice. And, you know, at some point you have to stop 
because then people you're just going to follow people into their madness. And also then their defiance of your rationality becomes a source of power for them. Like their power to deny your rationality gives their irrationality strength. Uh, you know, like any muscle works on resistance, right? And, and if you're opposing irrationality in someone, if you keep opposing it, when they've dedicated themselves, you're simply strengthening their resistance. You're strengthening. And this, again, has been well proven that, that when you oppose people's beliefs, quite often you simply strengthen those irrational beliefs. And so I had to stop. And uh, sadly, the, my prophecy, which was not really anything supernatural, of course, uh, was, was true. And his life became uh, a disaster uh, because you, you, you harm your brain. So he had, a, you know, obviously a susceptibility. Now he had the chance to inter intercept that susceptibility with reason, and he, he didn't. He made that choice, right? I mean, nobody fought for him that hard, I'm sure, before or after. And um, so I wouldn't say that it's, uh, you know, it serves some deep emotional need, because it certainly doesn't serve any deep emotional need in me, and I'm a human being as well. But we are not all the same people. Right, I mean, this is part of the myth of the soul, which has been my enemy for many years, which I've talked about before. We are not all the same people, right? There's R's and there's K's, and there's people with the religious gene set, and there are people without the religious gene set, there are people with the skeptical gene set, and we're all fighting for superiority. This isn't one of the reasons we can't have a state, is because human beings are engaged in genetic warfare pretty continually. But we're not all, we don't all have the same self-interest. Right, males have a different reproductive strategy from females. Rs have a different reproductive strategy from uh, Ks. Uh, the, the reality that the religious mindset or gene set lives in is radically opposed to the reality that the skeptics and the rationalists live in. And we are not all the same. We are all warring and competing gene sets, which would be fine in society without a state. That would be fun, it would be creative, and, and there would be some tension and friction that goes on. Right. Sometimes the rationalist can be a bit dull and uh, pedantic. You know, there aren't a lot of really great atheist novelists, in my humble opinion. Uh, but that's you know, topic for another time. There can be some imagination that that is sort of lacking. Like people on the right, you know, like the Bill Whittles and so on. Really great guys. Love listening to them and so on. But not a lot of um, rhetorical flourishes and deep Shakespearean power in in what they do. So it was people on the left. You know, it's like. The orange, Jenshi Kojan, I think she did Weeds and she's doing Orange is the New Black. I mean, it's fantastic writing and fantastic acting. Deeply repulsive human beings, you know? Like, it's weird to watch a prison show where you sympathize with the people, but you're like, yeah, I can see why they're in prison, and I'm actually pretty happy that they are, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's tough. Um, but uh, so without a government, these things would, would be decided you know, through breeding choices, they would be cited through art wars, right? Which, you know, are very, very important uh, and Wait, very helpful. Art wars? Art wars, yeah. You know, it's combat, art combat, you know, where, uh, you know, the communists are always trying to portray, you know, evil capitalists, right? And uh, oh, okay, the yeah, capitalists yeah. Uh, are not as good at portraying, like, evil parasites. I mean, other than Ayn Rand, who was like the the Dickensian master of, of the villain of the 20s. Dostoevsky and Dickens were masterful in villainy. Uh, and Shakespeare, of course, go even further back. Ayn Rand is, the, to me, the un, unquestioned master of, of the villain portrayal in the 20th century. But So in, in a free society, these gene wars would be great and, and you know, fine and, and exciting and, and cool. But uh, with a the state, uh, they become like battles to the, the grim death of the species, it seems like so.
Um, and, and everything you've said, I, I, I don't oppose or anything, but I, I think that, um, well, I guess what I'm saying is I, I see that religion arose, um, for a reason, Wh whether or not it is still helpful, you know, is a different question. Um, and in some, in a lot of ways it's not, um, like you no, said, religion, you know, uh, religion is, religion is, it rose out of laziness. Well, well, here's, I'm here's praying a, for you. Really? Can you, can you bake me a quiche? No, I'm praying, you know, like, and it's not to say that religious people are lazy. There's some great, wonderful, hardworking religious people, but fundamentally religion arose out of losing and lazing, right? The, the two L's of religion and, and sorry to give a speech again. I'll keep this brief, but. Right, I've used this example before. Right, so if you if you're a tribe and you you've lost out so badly that you have to live under a volcano, well, you have a problem, right? And so you got to live under this volcano, and because you're a weak tribe, you can't fight your way into better lands, right? So you got to live with this volcano. The volcano can erupt at any time. So what do you do? You got this anxiety of living in the volcano. Well, you can either toughen the hell up in your tribe and go beat up some other tribe and get better land or go explore some new area. I don't know what, right? Like, go do something. Go get out of the shadow of the volcano, right? Or you, and that's one way. That's, that's what the K would tell you to do. The, your K-selected genes would say, volcano, not good, <laughs> right? Uh, and you know, Mount Vesuvius, uh, you know, the not, not, not good to live under a volcano. So let's go someplace else, right? And, and that would be the K. Now, the, but the other part of you would say, hey, I wonder if I can invent a story. I wonder if I can invent a story that makes living under the volcano fine. And, and the story that you right. make up is some guy was dancing a jig when the volcano erupted, so now no more jigs. Right? Because that was the, we angered the volcano god, you know? And, uh, you know, that, that time when the sheep escaped, that also the volcano erupted. So now sheep have to be kept very tightly in a pen. And you just, you end up with this layer of neurotic bullshit rules that are designed, it has no effect on the volcano, of course, but it's designed to give you the illusion that it has an effect on the volcano, which Or an illusion of control. Yeah. And, and so it gives you real control over your anxiety, but only illusory control over the real source of your anxiety, which is the fact that you're living under a damn volcano, which is not good, right? And so, so your choice of, of fight or move, those would be proactive things to do, right? We gotta, look, if this is the only place, like if every, if, if the rest of this island is taken up with more aggressive tribes, we don't want to live under the volcano. We're either going to merge with those tribes, or if they won't, like, if there are enemies, then we're going to have to fight them. We're going to, have to drive them off, right? And so you, you make this, uh, this, this fight, right? Uh, or, you, you know, if there's places in the island where you could go, you go find those places, right? Or, or you figure out, you know, maybe nobody's figured out fishing yet. So you go figure out fishing. You go live by the, by the sea or whatever or by the lake. And so it's laziness. It's like, well, I don't want to go fight and I don't really want to move. So I'm just going to sit here and make up a story that lets me live by the volcano because I'm too lazy to fight and too scared to move. And that's our thinking, right? B Bill Whittle, uh, who I've only, I've seen one speech of his and one show of his. I uh, know I've seen a couple of shows. He does, um, I think Firewall it's called. And uh, he's worth having a watch. He's worth uh, W-H-I-T-T-L-E. 
so when I was doing this RK stuff, somebody sent me a um, uh, a, uh, a little sort of webcam speech that Bill Whittle gave. It's good. It was good. He was saying, you know, if you really want to understand, understand the RK stuff, he said, you know, like myself, he went to this this book that I talked about in the presentation, but he he said he wanted to add his own little bit to it. And it's a good bit. I'll just give it to you very briefly. Maybe, Mike, you can put the link to this below the video. But um, he said, imagine if we were suddenly transported into the bodies of antelopes in Africa. Okay. And we have all our brains, all our personalities. We're suddenly, because we're K, right? As humans, we're K no matter what, right? But, I mean, there's still a continuum within humanity. But let's say the Ks in humans, right? We're put into the brains of antelopes. Now, would we suddenly say, well, you know, as long as I can outrun my kid, well, the kid gets eaten by the lion, well, I can always make another kid, so it's not a big deal. Or, you know, if this, if, you know, my, my friend is, has got a bit of a lame leg, it's great because I can outrun him and all that. We wouldn't. We'd say, you know what? I've had it with these fucking lions. I have had it. With these motherfucking lions on this motherfucking plane, right? Like I've had, I've had it with these lions. I, 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 I no, we're not doing this. You know what we're gonna do? We, we call a circle. We'd all sit around. We got horns on our heads, right? Said, so you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go out real quiet because lions they often sleep at night. I sleep during the day. I whenever the hell the lions sleep. We're gonna go find out when they sleep, and we're gonna go find out where they are. And you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna kill these lions. We are gonna surround them. We are going to charge them. We are going to hoof them in the head. We are going to gore them. We're going to kick them, right? Like I mean, a, a lion chasing a zebra, the zebra can break the lion's jaw just by kicking, right? We are going to stomp all over their babies. We are just, we are going to drive these, we're going to kill them or we're going to drive them up, but we are not submitting to these lion attacks anymore. Fuck them. Right? That's what caves would do if they were suddenly in our bodies. And if I was, you know, suddenly in charge of this tribe, shaking with fear at the bottom of a volcano, I'd be like, man, this is no way to live. We, we can't live like this. What the hell? I mean, what's wrong with this? Like, let's get up an hour early every morning. Let's go lift some logs. Let's go figure out which frogs, uh, frogs' asses give the most potent poison. And let's figure out some blow dots. Let's go figure out how to make nunchucks out of starfish. Like, whatever the hell we got to do, we, we, can't, we can't live here like this anymore. This is barely living. We've got six million different rules, none of which is going to affect what the volcano does one little bit. We've got to stop fantasizing that we've got any control here. We've got no control. And all we're doing is we're being, we're being enslaved by our own delusions. We're creating more and more rules which have nothing to do with whether the volcano erupts or not. We're being enslaved by our own rules. We're burying ourselves under regulations for, for no purpose whatsoever. So that we're being enslaved, not by the volcano, but by our own cowardice, by our own refusal to do what is necessary to get to a better living situation and condition. That's what I do. I'm sure that's what you would do as well. I mean, you sit there and, okay, we need another rule because the volcano just erupted again or whatever. And so, um, to me, religion is pretty R-focused. And... Um, this is one of the reasons why the K's of the Roman Empire gave way to the R's of the uh, Christian Empire, the slave mentality and so on. And uh, this is why the, um, the K's of the warrior class in the West that, that built up colonialism and expanded the West around the world, the sun never set on the British Empire, which owned a third of the globe, then they all get wiped out in World War I or World War II, 
And now you've got these appeasers who are like, yeah, Muslims, come on in, right? I mean, and political correctness and all cultures are equal and all that relativistic, non-competitive R crap. Um, this is just the gene wars that we're associated with. And uh, we pay, we case better <laughs> the fuck up uh, because, uh, you know, these rabbits have got teeth because of the state. So anyway, does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, most of like what you're saying is sort of what I so basically what I did is um, in order to prepare for the talk, I just uh, had some some bullet points with sort of a, a progression of where my thought was on religion, um, and, and some most of the points that you had uh, regarding sort of the soothing effects of religion um, and and how they it's sort of a, a construct that allows you to to be at ease uh, in your surroundings, um, wherever they may be, where however dangerous they may uh, they may be, and however much you don't understand them, all all the mystery of the world around you can be reduced into something that doesn't matter anymore under the veil of religion. Um, and 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 in that regards, I I definitely agree. I mean, I think that. Um, from from what I was going to pre present it as, I guess, or, or talk about as, uh, is in in the discussion of what is known in in uh, in, in psychology as like system one and system two. Um, are you familiar with those things? No. Uh, okay, so basically, um, there are two modes of thinking, and it's not to say that uh, this is like you know, hard and fast. It's just an easier way to categorize things. Um, and it, it is, it is, there are a lot of studies to show that, you know, there, there are basically two, two modes of thinking and, and I'll explain it. So system one is, um, this sort of faster intuitive thinking where you don't really, uh, deeply think about it. You're not really rationalizing. You're just kind of absorbing your surroundings and making whatever coherent conclusions about the surroundings you can as quickly as possible. Um, and it's sort of the, you know, the mind-numbing when you're just you're not really thinking, you're just walking around, you're just watching TV, whatever. Um, and then system two is the more, the, the one where you're actually thinking, you're solving problems, you're solving a math problem, you're, uh, or it's actually, it, it is occupied when you're doing even physical labor. If you're doing physical labor, uh, an example of this is um, if you are walking um, and you ask someone, next to you and you said hey uh solve this math problem 17 times 21 in your head it's very likely that they'll stop walking and try to answer it because the the system two uh, this categorization of system two when you're, when you're thinking hard trying to solve a problem is um associated with an expenditure of energy that you want to preserve when thinking and, and so it's very hard to think clearly and, and very and very hard about a, a subject or problem while running or walking very fast. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I actually really enjoy moving while I do my show. Like, I haven't done my show right, sitting but, down. But you're moving at a languid pace, right? Yeah, I'm not doing crunches while hanging upside down like a bat. Yeah, I get it. Right, right. Yeah, so a languid pace is still okay. But, like, if you, if you were doing a, you know, five-mile... I'm at a, a five-minute mile. You know, you probably won't be doing very much thinking, other than the thinking that's focusing on trying to get you to keep running. Uh, yeah, so at I least mean, myself, I'm not motivated. Yeah, a great thinking time for me is uh, 
I don't know if, if it's the same for you, but a great thinking time for me is the time in the morning after I wake up, but before I get up. Uh, it's, it's a very, um, very creative uh, time for my brain to be cooking its magic brew. And um, that, of course, is a very physically languid time. But it's a great time to let my mind wander and to explore new thoughts and new ideas. There's a lot of creativity in that time for me. So, um, yeah, I think that would certainly accord with what you're saying. Right. And so basically the with these two systems, it's um, it, it's not too hard to sort of to think about um, sort of a bigger picture with those systems. So with system one, um, from, from, okay, from an evolutionary standpoint, right? You want to save your energy to do things that are constructive to, to, to first of all, surviving, and, and secondly, to reproduce, correct? Uh, and so um, what I think is that, you know, there was a time when the majority of our efforts uh, were spent doing those two things. There wasn't very much else to living other than uh, doing what is necessary to live and then to reproduce. Um, but that is clearly not the case anymore. There, you have you have a lot of free time to tackle whatever problem you choose that is expending energy that is not used to gather food or to you know you know what I mean. Okay, and I, I think this very, you know, obviously correlates with uh, about twelve thousand years ago, uh, in in the in the agricultural expansion, uh, driven by you know realizing we could uh, use crops and and stay put and and once okay, so that gave that gave an evolutionary advantage when you had a surplus of food by by taking advantage of the surroundings you could have other people specialize in things that well first of all you'd have a higher population uh you could sustain that of course but secondly you could have people specializing in things that weren't uh that wasn't directly surviving and and trying to live and so people could specialize in things that allowed you to say militarize and take over other lands and 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 completely you know increase your the amount of arable lands increase the amount of food you have increase the amount of people you can have to specialize in military efforts and 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 in thinking and and um, whatever else you want your city to have and so there was a there's a clear evolutionary advantage to to having a a or, or societal benefit if you wanted to you, you, but you get what I'm saying right mm-hmm. okay so but now that you don't have to use your time um, by only living, you don't have to just do what is instinctually necessary uh, for just any animal, um, you have a lot of leisure time to think. And that's a lot of leisure time to choose what to think about. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that with this came a lot of fear and uncertainty because certainly you're, you're thinking about uh, – you know, you have more time to think about things that can bother you. You, you can think about, well, you know, what what is what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? What is what is life after death? What is what is all, all these mysterious things? You know, what what are the stars? What are, what is this comet? Whatever or asteroid? You know, and uh, clearly this is very unsettling. It's 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 almost just like you know this instant existential crisis where you don't know your purpose in life, and you're, and there's a lot of things to be afraid of, right? Well, okay, but 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 I I, I kind of get what you're saying, but 
I, I would argue that I don't think it's oppositional, but I think it's complementary. I would argue that um, telling men that there's a life after death is going to make it more likely that they'll fight to the death, right? Right. If you have two groups of warriors, one of whom is afraid of uh, dying, uh, dying, and another of whom is 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 willing to embrace the death, right? Then it's not too hard to figure out who is going to be more likely to prevail. And this is one of the ways in which the religious gene set uh, spreads, right? By immunizing people to the fear of uh, death, it uh, mm. makes them into somewhat, somewhat, right? There's recklessness, right? Too, but somewhat more. Uh, deadly warriors, right? I mean, because in in the in the Kamikaze versus the Manhattan Project, right? I mean, uh, the uh, uh, the the Americans won out because they were less willing to die uh, than the Kamikaze pilots and so on. So, so they fought smarter because w willingness to die will make you um, fight harder, but it won't necessarily make you fight smarter. And so, in that war between those who are not afraid of death. And those who wish to fight preserve their lives by fighting smarter. It's the that's the I think the scientific versus the religious mindset there. So I think there are some advantages to the religious mindset in the short term, in that it will help you to win battles. But in the long run, um, the, the cunning, right, the, the art of war stuff that that wins out. I I didn't think about it into in, in the perspective of of war, so. That was an interesting insight. Well, um, can we imagine what kind of society we'd be living in if uh, Muslims had developed the uh, nuclear weapons first, right? Hmm. I don't. I don't have much doubt of what kind of society we'd be living in, right? So, yeah, the fact that they some of them are willing to be suicide bombers doesn't mean that they're going to win. It just means that that right. So it's just you know, it's just one strategy, um, which is the willingness to forego the fear of death. But I think that uh, I think that it, it of course has transcended. It, I, I don't. Of course, I don't know what started, what phenomenon started. Was it was it people's fear of death that that made them think of the supernatural? Was it just mysterious things occurring around them that they couldn't explain? They didn't have the tools necessary. I mean, science does so beautifully with many things now. I mean, and one analogy or not analogy, but story that is that is very um, apt in describing that is the the. I, in 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 my English class, uh, I we had to read a lot of it was it was a survey of English literature, um, you know American, uh, and so the first thing we read was some Puritan stuff and, and and very very dry very boring, but one thing that you that very clearly stands out is a uh, a complete reliance on God to explain phenomenon in every way, right? Um, you. You thank God. Okay, you see something you don't understand. You you know it's God's will. Someone dies, it's okay. It's God's will. You someone gets sick, you're you just pray. It's God's will. You know there. But today, um, you know you get sick. You don't consult God. You you consult medicine. You consult the you know you consult the internet. Maybe you look at symptoms. You say you consult your doctor. And so there's been a shift. And and my my teach. Uh, you know, jokingly said, you know, it's not God, it's Google. You know, right? right. Uh, no one, no, right? No one looks towards God as uh, as their answer. Well, 
No, people do. Right? For thing, I mean, well, well, I mean, for things that, well, sorry, most people that want a, a a solution that can actually be, you know, obtained, will look towards something scientific. Yeah, no, but I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses won't do um, blood transfusions, and there are people who don't do chemotherapy or other things, uh, and so on, right? So, but but you're right. I think majority of people go to the doctor. Right, and there, it's just that. You know, when you're reading this, this, these texts, there's just a clear distinction between you as a reader, hopefully, uh, and and these Puritans who had a complete reliance on all explaining all phenomenon by and and by God's will, and um, clearly we we've both pretty much established that that this sets forth a, a set of, kind of an ease and an un, uneasy environments, correct? What? Well, sorry, you mean the religion puts forward an Ease and uneasy environments, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and so I guess what I'm saying is that in, in light of what I brought up system one and two, and, and, and the reason I did so is because um, the expenditure of energy um, or is like the law of least effort, right? You, you, you want to accomplish things by spending the least amount of energy. Um, and so by using system two at any point, you're expending more energy than if you use system one. And so, uh, any environment, it, it was it was advantageous to not expend that energy in, in despair and, and not knowing what you should do, um, or or what the outcome of tomorrow will be. To instead become at ease, and then so any any surrounding, so anything in repetition becomes uh, something that is more at ease in your in your mind to see. So something that you're uncomfortable with for the first time that you see. Um, if you continue, um, so if you if you hated clowns or something, I, I I don't really know what kind of irrational fear people have, but a lot of people say they're afraid of clowns for some reason. And if you're but if you're afraid of clowns, they're, and, not, they're not afraid of clowns per se. They're afraid of being around people who think it's a good idea to spend their life learning to become a clown. I'm just <laughs> kidding. I don't know why. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, or they saw the movie It or something. Um, but basically, the 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 idea is that if you continually see a clown throughout your time and, and, and nothing bad happens, uh, hopefully, um, otherwise maybe their fears were justified, then you will eventually become at ease in that environment and it's no longer taxing on your psyche in order to be around it. And so, Yeah, this is uh, training the uh, amygdala or progressive exposure. You train the amygdala to not respond uh, as a sort of life or death emergency when uh, it's a clown, right? Right, and so I think unless the, the same, clown is like hovering over your bed uh, with a machete, in which case that's just different. But go ahead. Well, I think the same process was was occurring, and uh, the creation. I, I say creation, but I use the word loosely. The the I don't want to say evolution either, but the sort of process of making religion something that uh, people used as a tool to come out to get over that. Um, sort of despair with their surroundings and their misunderstandings and their and all the mystery and wait wait questions. But sorry I think sorry I think we took a turn here because my argument was that it doesn't help people deal with the fears in their surroundings right because but I, it, I it, think it, that it, I think by it, externalizing the cause as God's will it makes them feel less bad about the immediate it's a short term solution which creates long term chronic problems uh, because you know you you can say the the volcano god is angry, 
But then the solution isn't let's move away from the volcano. The solution is let's appease the volcano god, which paralyzes you in terms of being able to move away from the volcano. But I think that, um, well, you know, there are some situations, uh, well, there are many situations, if not most or all, that um, lying to yourself is not good, right? I mm-hmm. And I agree with that. But what I'm saying is that it's not that it's there. There are other. There are some things. Okay, so if you lived in a volcano, yes, the best solution would just be to get the hell out of there. Um, but there are some things that are mysterious. They're they're unsettling that you can't really avoid. You can't avoid the the truth that you will die. You can't avoid, you know, these the horrors of of maybe having to live in an environment that. Is that has a terrible winter or or something like that? I mean, I guess you could move, but you may not have the resources to do so. And so, when you're faced with those situations, um, it, it's that that amount of despair for something you can't fix. You you can leave a volcano, but you cannot prevent the fact that you will die. Correct? I mean, well, you can influence it, right? Well, well, that would be true for something like medicine. Where believing in God would be, an, or, or putting your faith in God would not be a good thing. If you wanted to extend your lifespan, you, you would, you would of course, choose medicine. Um, but at the time, they didn't have those tools. They didn't have medicine. They didn't. But have, why didn't they have medicine? <laughs> right. The reason they didn't have medicine was that they thought it was God's will. But I'm not, I'm not saying that it is a preferable stance to to medicine or that or anything. But just that no, but we're, no, it was but satisfactory. So, no, hang on. No, I mean, I know what the issue is, is that you're saying, well, when you don't have control, you're more likely to believe in God. And what I'm saying is that, okay, let's say that's true to begin with. The problem is that then you end up in a situation where you continue to have no control because of your belief in God. But I guess at that point, you don't care. I'm not saying that's good. But I'm, I'm just what trying that, to understand. Are you saying that all well, people don't care about control after they get religion? I think that's a pretty broad statement. No, but just that uh, part. I think that many religions epitomize giving your control to a, a central power. Uh huh. And that if you're saying that as you progress through a religious mindset, that you're that you begin to, while you felt like you had control, you eventually begin to lose that control over time. Um, as you begin to continually stop um, saying that you can do things or that you can intervene in in God's plan, and and I agree that's 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 completely you know reasonable, and it does happen. And, I mean, going back to the Puritans, you know, they didn't try to medicate themselves in the same ways because they did think it was God's plan or or whatever. Um, but there is a okay. So first of all, like or, there are there are a few like things that that make a religion, of course, and and most or religions are just a sort of a belief in some supernatural or divine force. Usually, that is a uh, constructed into the idea of a personalized god. Doesn't have to be, but usually it is. Uh, and there's a reason for that, but. And I can explain in a second, but then there are culturally inherited traditions and like guidelines for behavior, right? And then there are practices, like you have 
you have rites or ceremonies or whatever, you know, the, I'm, I'm most familiar with, uh, Catholicism simply because well, I was I was raised into Catholicism um, since left it but you know I was raised in it um, and so things like taking the Eucharist and things of that nature are sort of the examples of of, of the sermons or even just going to church and so I think that this this idea of you're losing control um, is not good but I think it's almost part of the development of a, of your faith as you become as you increase your faith, you you're, you are giving more uh, idea that you are giving more control to God. And so, you know, it's not good, um, but you're saying that, you know, that happens. But I think that it, it's not just like, oh, it happens. I mean, it's almost like a goal of a, of a religious thing, right? I, I, I think we're getting progressively more incomprehensible. At least I'm not following. The goal of a religious thing is to me not a very technically precise or comprehensible statement. But I will say, of course, that you um, you end up with, um, you know, when you take the religious approach to anxiety management, right? Right. The, the 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 slave has to manage himself because he can't manage his environment, right? Now, the degree to which he is a slave because in the past his ancestors refused to manage their environment, I don't know, right? That's obviously an unprovable and vague speculation, but. Um, uh, oh, so the slave that... has to manage himself because he has no capacity to change his environment, right? This is back to Nietzsche's uh, Superman and Underman or whatever, right? So the, the slave says, um, well, I can't not be a slave, so um, I guess I'll make a virtue out of being a slave. Oh, this religion is telling me that it's virtuous to be a slave and it's bad to be an owner. Well, that, I'd rather take that because I'm not going to revolt. Um, against my slave owners, and so I might as well get uh, a virtue, uh, pretend that it's a virtue to be a slave. Now, that gives him some uh, significant uh, advantage uh, emotionally in the moment, right? And, and you know, I understand, it's not a criticism, it's just like an observation, right? I can understand, and we all have these habits and, and all of that. And um, the problem is, of course, that uh, it means that uh, by pretending to have control in the here and now, they, they lose control with regards to the future. In other words, because I'm going to manage myself rather than rebel against my environment, my environment becomes permanent. Does that make sense? Sure. So, um, and of course, when it comes to the priestly class, what happens is you end up with uh, a group of people who make a hu who make an enormous amount of money and have a huge amount of power by telling other people that they're powerless. Right? I mean, because in the Catholic religion, you need the priest to get into heaven. And so you have to pay the priest to cure you of the imaginary disease called sin. Which, by the way, of course, would be fraud and prosecutable offense in any other situation or environment. But, you know, we just, there's no point creating rules if you intend to follow them for most people. And so you, you create a group with a, a huge vested interest in continuing the narrative, right? In other words, because there's a volcano that can erupt at any time, and some people would rather manage themselves than manage the actual problem by 
fighting or moving away or something like that. What happens is you end up with a huge power structure in the tribe that requires proximity to the volcano. Right? They like the 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 the, the god the, the the priests of placating the volcano god, they require that the tribe stay near the volcano. Does that make sense? Right. I, I, I get what you're saying. And so and and so the the, the, the kings and and the I think what Rand used to call the witch doctors and the uh, the warriors, the warrior kings, um, they uh, then tr- they, they, the whole tribe is then trapped at the base of the volcano, and anyone who then suggests we should move away from the volcano is like a, a heretic and and. Uh, is is someone who must be uh, pursued and and prosecuted and this that and the other right, and, and and this is how the 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 approach or, or the methodology of managing yourself and managing your anxieties through illusions turns from a temporary solution to a permanent problem into a permanent non-solution to what could have otherwise been a temporary problem, i.e., we're living by a volcano. And it, it, you're then fenced and, and attached to the volcano by delusion and addiction. Well, um, I think an interesting thing to note here is, you know, so, so clearly um, people find themselves, you know, believing in religions uh, with, with, for whatever, you know, that we've already discussed. And, and oftentimes, rational people who aren't religious are, are you know, you know, uh, taking don't really understand why someone would allow themselves to live near this volcano, right? Um, and and submit to such a thing. But just just as a, a, a some information that is interesting and, and and pertinent. Um, so when I was discussing the the system one and system two, so one thing that's interesting about system one, which is the default state of mind to the sort of intuitive thinking, like I was saying, is that it is, um. System two, I mean, sorry. System one judges the the truth or false, uh, falsity or falseness of the of a statement or a story or whatever, based on its coherence, and not the amount or quality of the information. And so, as long as a story can be constructed that makes sense, since it's not really a very hard thinking process, then you can you'll accept it as true and it is up it is the job of the harder thinking and more uh, of system two to question that assertion that system one has created um and and you know a lot of the times you know we'll find things that don't don't add up you know um and so it's what i'm saying is uh you you mentioned a genetic predisposition to to believing in a religious construct but i think that there's also just a um, but uh, of course, the genetic predisposition plays a role. Um, but it's it's very easy to find yourself to in believing that and not questioning yourself if you're um, as long as the story is coherent. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. I don't I don't know what that means. So okay, a, so a more consistent story is more believable. Uh, I'm not saying that it it actually is, but for for the way uh, that Psychologists have have understood how people take in, in information and and 
and judge its truth value or false value, whatever, uh, on, on, a, on a first glance basis without actually putting forth the effort to, and, and being lazy, in other words, um, when you just read something and you're like, what, well, this, how do I feel about this immediately? The coherence, which is basically just, can you make a series of events that makes sense in terms of um, cause and effect in a, in a sense? So for, the, for, for God, for example, um, you could say, oh, well, God, his will made me sick and I'm sick. So that, that's a cause and effect that's a very, it's coherent because it, it has a clear cause and effect, but it's not true when you scrutinize further. Does that make sense? I, I'm honestly not sure what we're talking about here. The stuff that feels true is easier to accept than stuff that doesn't feel true? I'm sorry, if I'm dense, I'm maybe not just following what you're saying, or maybe it's simpler than I think, or maybe it's more complex than I think. But Well, no, it's just things that seem... Okay, so if, if I gave you a series of words, right, and I said, uh, you know... Uh, you know, or, or a series, a, a couple sentences, you know, or three sentences, and I said, you know, John is angry. The maids showed up late for work, and the movie starts at two. You know, you can those three sentences. You know, you can quickly create a coherent story that John is angry because the maids were late for work, and it has nothing to do with movies, right? Okay. Right. So it's just the ability to take in information and see. So system one, which is your initial check for information, your way of just analyzing things for face value, cares about the coherence of a story for its believability. And so uh, you would believe a story like, oh, John is late, or is angry because his maids were late for work because it's coherent and not because it's necessarily true. Right. And you have to then scrutinize and think further. And so I think that I, I may, I'm mentioning that this in the context of religion because religion it has a coherent story and it has a you know a clear cause and effect it has it even has you know people who are personified beings that interact and so it is easier to believe even more so than a genetic predisposition but just from the way that we process information are you saying that people who don't believe in religion are bad at processing information People, I'm not no, no. trying to be confrontational. I'm just sort of understanding. If you're no, no, saying no. that based on the way human beings process information, religion is believable, then it would seem to me that there would then be a deficiency in people who weren't religious in processing information. No, no. They, they process it the same way, but then people who don't believe in it are typically more likely to scrutinize and be skeptical and therefore employ system two, which is the, the, more, the, one, the more energy expendant uh, the one that expends more energy and for deeper thought. So those right. people are more likely to to question. Well, better. I mean, it's it's thought, not deeper thought. It's just thought, right? Right. And so the the sort of this like it, it's the idea between having like unconscious and conscious thought, sort of basically. So like you 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 can unconscious or just like without thinking about it, you can you can look around at surroundings and tell what the surroundings are, right? You don't have to yeah. think very hard to say, oh, that's a table, that's whatever. And so it's that same kind of thing. You you can take these statements for for truth uh, for face value and believe them, and, and religion being one of those things, if you never critically think about it with uh you know with, with this system two thought. Um, but but I think that what what often ends up happening 
is, you know, when you are in a state of distress, you you're you're expending that energy, and you're 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 basically what is known as like ego depletion. So ego depletion is just the concept that when you expend too much energy, you're less likely to to be critical and skeptical because you don't you'd rather be lazy and just accept things for face value when you're really tired, you know. Well, I wouldn't say that tiredness is the same as lazy, right? Well, well, in both cases, if you you're know, really if, tired, if I, no, or hang you're on. Really I mean, lazy. If, if I've been if I've been working at a physical job all day and I don't feel like going jogging, that's not really because I'm lazy, right? I'm tired. Right. Uh, I'm sorry for saying that the two are the same. Um, all right. But what what I what I mean is just that uh, if you're tired from doing you know some physical labor or thinking really hard. You're less likely to to try to try hard again when you've already expended your energy, and or or on the on the flip side, if you're lazy and you haven't done anything, but you're just you try to, you're aversive to doing work and thinking, then you're you're more likely to to accept these 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 uh, so-called arguments that don't really actually contain you know factual information. Um, and so, if you are in a distressful environment, then you're expending energy distressing. And so it's easy to find yourself not scrutinizing and, and just accepting things that will make you feel better. That, that, that's sort of that you were talking about, that, that quick solution that is bad for the long term. And so I, I think that… Yeah, like it's, it's easier to drink than to deal with your personal problems, right? Right. Uh, but the problem is the more, you, the more you drink, the more personal problems you end up with. So it turns out to not be a very productive solution. I, I think I agree with that. I mean, I don't see how that would be too arguable. Right. And so… Um, so perhaps like, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm just saying that in order to, to add another perspective of, of why people would come into something like religion other than a genetic predisposition. Well, and the propaganda, of course, right? As we talked about in the beginning that they're told that it's true and they're punished, uh, if they don't believe that it's true, right? Right. And, and then you can, you can once again, employ that same sort of thought. If you if you are in a state of distress by not believing, it is easier to 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 put that off, right? And and just believe it. Right. Especially if there's uh, something that can actually happen to you that's very bad, like you get killed or something. Um, right. Listen, man. I think uh, I, I've certainly got enough from the conversation to make sense of it for me. Do you mind if we move on to the last caller? Um. I I think that's. Fine, if, especially considering that, uh, I mean, I, I like I when I indicated in the email that I had some other things to discuss, but I think that you are, you know, tired, and so I'm going to go ahead and let you go. We can schedule for another call down the road, Nicholas, to bring up your other questions. It's kind of tough sometimes to get to two, especially if they're long ones within the context of one call, but. Yeah, we can't do like all of uh, all of religious etymology and motivations and so on. And uh, so, uh, no, it's not that I'm tired. It's just that we do have another caller to get to. And uh, um, I, I feel like we're it, it's not bad. I mean, but I feel like we're um, uh, not getting to anything too radical. If that makes sense, I'm not saying radical has to be radical or anything like that. But if we're saying that you know tired people have tough time thinking and uh, that uh, you know people who drink to solve their problems end up with more problems. I just think that's not necessarily the best use of listener time, but uh, I'm certainly happy to talk more if you want to call back in. Um, and but I guess like the only thing I will bring up, but you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Well, I mean, I, sh- I don't have to tell you that, but 
uh, is just, so I actually um, worked on a research paper in which I described sort of this process of believing in religion, but uh, more so on the side of what religion might do in the future. And uh, so that is to say that, well, but the, the issue is, I think you're what, clearly... I'm not sure what you mean by what religion might do in the future. I don't know what that means. Um, well, just that uh, this concept of, in short, I think the concept of a religion will not go away anytime soon. Um, I agree. But that the concept of a god may come under scrutiny. Um, and so when I was looking at this, and, and the reason why is because I think that science exerts levels of control that are extremely, you know, uh, empirically obvious. Whereas what do you mean by control? Not. You mean control over the world? Yes. You okay. can, so you can, you can control a, a, a phenomenon and you can see, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, it's very uh, reasonable. It's provable. And it's provable and it's very algorithmic. And what does that algorithmic so, mean? Uh, just that you know with a certain set of processes that you can have an expected outcome. Okay, got it. Predictable. Right. And okay. so, um, I, but I think that basically there, there, are, there are big problems that we, we must face. We, you know, overpopulation uh, of, our, of our, and we will have to face, like, do we have enough resources? How do we use these resources? Whatever. Um, and the science is increasingly coming on the brink of having more and more control over our environment and even more recently ourselves, right? You, you know, it's, it's not a long shot for things like eugenics to become a huge issue when, when we can manipulate our own genes at birth or before birth, right? And so with this uh, increased level of control that science will exert, I think that it will be less likely for people to to justify the conceptualization of a god that has control. Right. And uh, but the thing is, I don't think religion would go away still. And so I just sort of religion hasn't gone away among atheists. It's just switched to statism. The belief in an all-powerful being that uh, somehow can respond to human demands and has no agenda of its own. And I mean, I just. I don't see how religion has vanished at all. It, it, Marxism is just another kind of religion. So, and but in light of that, though, I just I just wanted to muse in in this paper that what the future of religion might be in light of an, an increased scientific advancements, and whether or not uh, because clearly whether or not religion is a, a a good thing, it's there, and so I sort of. I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, you, you seem to be taking like an observational stance, and I would sort of invite you to take more of an activist stance. You know, like, well, religion is there, and it's like, well, why don't you work at having religion not be there, and so on. Well, I guess, like, I, I think I find it more of... The reason why I don't take such an active stance and more of an observational stance is because I don't think... Um, it's almost sort of a cynical thing. I, I just don't have belief that I can change humanity enough to make them, you know, make radical changes like that. So I, you think I, that I'm mistaken? In, I'm not trying to be confrontational. I'm just genuinely curious. Do you think that I'm mistaken in my attempt to try and bring more rationality to, to the world? 
No, but I don't think that it's possible to have like a a completely rational. And, and by completely rational, I don't mean like you are rational all the time. Wait, but wait, I just wait, think. Wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> First, when have I? Have, I mean, my, when have I ever said completely rational as if that's even possible? I don't even know what that would mean. Would that mean your dreams would be rational? Would that mean that your all of your no, no, sexual no, I mean, tastes like, would be completely rational? I mean, I'm not sure what you mean by completely rational. I don't mean completely rational as a hum, like as an individual, but like. I think that ideally, and I, I, I guess you're aware of the fact that idealisms in terms of trying to change the world are, you know, it's not, I don't, whatever the case, I don't think that I can make people stop believing in religion because I think it's just no, no, like. No, no, we've, we've established that. My, that's not, that wasn't my question. Well, because I, because I don't think I can change people in, in, in that fundamental of a way, I can't change their human nature to avoid believing in non-rational no, no, things. You're still not. You're still not. Sorry, you're still not answering my question, right? Because if you think that it's human nature to believe this, and any attempts to to change it are are futile and, and foolish, right? Then that's my question: Is do you? And I'm not trying to be confrontational. I'm just genuinely curious. Do you think that uh, my goal to bring more rationality to human thought is uh, uh, is uh, uh, erroneous? Is it like a fool's quest? In other words, do I have the capacity to change people's minds for the better, but you don't, or nobody does, and I'm fooling myself? Um, and the reason being is that, you know, to me, belief systems are very, very important. And, and if you have an insight about the lack of capacity uh, for people to reason uh, that is uh, something that you believe to be true or have very strong evidence for, you know, that would be pretty important for, for me, right? I want to spend right. my life doing things that don't make sense, right? Um, I mean, I suppose I think that, I guess I'll just be honest and say that I haven't thought about this particular topic enough to to really have anything worthwhile to say. What do you mean? You just told me that you don't think you can change people's minds. Well, I mean, I, I and have, And I'm like, asking, do you think that anyone can? And that's a pretty important question, right? I mean, the thing is, I guess what... What I thought, but I haven't actually been questioned in this thought and, and haven't put enough time into it in order to have, like, that's why I felt like I didn't have anything worth, worthwhile to say. But what, like, what I've thought without, um, in the past is just that people who are reasonable, um, can become, like, you don't, don't always start reasonable. Sometimes it is an enlightening person. Um, and, and even for myself, I, I was inspired by other people to become more rational. Um, I watched a lot of Richard. Oh, Pine so, so, so it can, right? It can, but I just feel like, um, in but my you don't experience, want so you want other people to do it, but you don't want to do it. Well, I mean, I've tried. It's just, I guess, so I feel you, like my attempts, perhaps. I'm not again. I'm not trying to be confrontational. I'm just genuinely trying to understand. Do you want the world to become more rational? If yes, but you don't want to do it, then you want other people to do it for you, and that's fine. I mean, just. I'm just curious what what your thoughts are. I mean, that. I've have tried it on a small scale, but I've I feel like I've never really been successful. And I mean, perhaps I am just bad at con convincing you, them. You've put a lot of effort into trying to understand these things, right? Which, you know, I think is great. But, you know, I wonder if it may not be more productive for you to put more effort into uh, actually figuring out how to change people's minds so that you can have the kind of uh, environment that you you want right which is a more rational world i mean i oftentimes find myself in, in in a polar opposite environments where 
Uh, I'm either with people who are very irrational and I kind of give up on even trying to talk about rational things to them or in an environment where it's completely rational uh, or not, sorry, where it's much more rational and I don't have to worry about trying to convince them to be rational. I can just worry about discussing ideas of ras- the rational people would discuss. Um, so, and so you spend time with people who can't think or who already agree with you? Yes. Well, that's not really going to help make the world more rational, right? But I'm saying that that's just what I've ended up doing because I went to a, a not a great uh, like high school, and then I switched over to a magnet school. Um, and so like my, my experience in those two environments has left me um, in those two like places. Left you, that's very passive, right? Um, I mean, I actively sought after a more rational environment and, and a people who cared about education more and stuff like that. That's why I went to the magnet school. So I guess it was more proactive than I. Right. And the reason why I'm sure you're aware, right? But the reason why I'm bringing all this stuff up is that, you know, it's not like we have a real excess of people who are working hard to make the world a more rational place. And I think you clearly care about making the world a more rational place or you'd like the world to be more rational. And, uh, you know, why not join us? in that goal rather than saying, well, I guess I'm just not good at it or I don't think it's going to work or whatever. Um, I mean, it seems sort of unfair that you want the world to be more rational, but you want other people to take on the tough stuff of, of making it happen. But, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be more satisfying to, to instead of worrying about this abstract religious stuff, to just focus on, you know, what, what um, uh, my friend Peter Bogosian talks uh, street epistemology, right? Which is you go out and you try and get people to become irrational by challenging their belief systems uh, and taking on that that sort of personal challenge. I think that would be a more satisfying use of your considerable intellectual gifts than uh, mucking about in the etymology of religious thought. Um, I and I, while I agree with you, and I I hope that one day I will have the confidence to do so. And 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 and. You won't. Uh, well, no, I'm not going to say well. No, because I don't. Like n- nobody's like, yay, you know, I get to deal with irrational people and and confront people and challenge. They're like, it's never like, yay. I mean, I think you have to be a sadist to, to like, yay, you know, I get to really. Like, it, it's not going to happen to you. It's something that you make happen. Well, what I'm saying is, I think that um, before I do that, I should focus on um, sort of personal developments in order to. Uh, because I, I don't think that assertiveness and and put and forcing or not forcing but just putting my ideas out there is something that is a very comfortable zone for me and so it would be pushing myself to do so and so I think it's yeah. and and I have been I've been you know in the last year or so I've been focusing a lot on personal development in order to to change other aspects of my life that I think were um, sort of brought upon me from my my childhood or, or whatever that I didn't want and so right. but i'm i'm glad that you you have brought up being more assertive because i i guess i i've i've actually had a, several instances with my very uh good teacher who who's like a mentor to me uh and and he was my physics teacher and and i had a friend who both you know tried to make me more assertive more 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 confident in my abilities and um 
So it is it is something that I feel like I should, you know, for some reason, you saying it to me and, and thinking that, uh, you know, all these people will see that I'm not assertive has made me much more interested in, 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 in changing that developmental thing. Good. Yeah, I mean, I just think that would be um, a, a, a better use of your considerable gifts than um, this uh, this stuff, which, again, uh, is interesting. Uh, it, to me, the etymology of the stuff is really important. Uh, but, you know, in a sense, do we care where cancer comes from? So let's just cure it. Hmm. Especially if, if knowing where it comes from doesn't help us cure it. I mean, the, etio- the etymology of, of these belief systems, you know, again, it's it's interesting stuff to speculate about, but I don't think that it's going to be the case that we're going to say to people, well, see, this is where religion really comes from, and then they're going to say, oh, okay, well, then I guess I'm not religious, right? Yeah. So that's just my thought about, uh, uh, I think, uh, a goal, right, a goal to have. And it's not like we're overflowing with people who are, uh, willing to take this on, so uh, that would be my my request. You know, is that uh, you know pick up uh, <laughs> pick up your mental armor and uh, join us on the battlements because uh, I don't think there's any other way for the world to become better. And you clearly have a lot of gifts uh, this way, and uh, it would be great if you could. Well, I'm glad that I tried to talk about something else. Then, all right, man. Thanks, Emil, for calling in. Let us know how it goes, and uh, uh, we'll uh, talk to you again, I hope. All right. Well, if I ever have anything that uh, I think anybody will want or I want to talk about or you want to talk about, then I'll, I'll just let you know. But, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, man. All right. Well, up next is Aaron. Aaron wrote in and said, recently you commented during... Do You Hate the World, a show that we put out recently, something along the lines that abuse tends to drop IQ or intelligence. I seem to have the impression that many famous intellectuals, inventors, and creative types were subject to childhood abuse, brain injury, or illness slash mindsets such as Asperger's. What are your thoughts on how their illnesses interact with their success? Yeah, I mean, you you do hear a lot about the sort of uh, the geniuses uh, of of history and so on, but you know there were lots of uh, you know great people in history uh, who did uh, amazing intellectual work who weren't you know massively messed up or anything like that. So I'm not sort of convinced in the necessity for um, trauma for people to be uh, uh, to to be uh, brilliant and contribute in that way, if that makes sense. You know, Shakespeare had a very happy marriage and, and all that. No, Dickens didn't, but uh, and neither did Einstein. But uh, I don't know that we can say that uh, uh, they um, that, that there was a requirement, right? I mean, there's lots of people who are traumatized who aren't geniuses, right, obviously. And there are lots of people who are uh, geniuses who aren't uh, traumatized. And so I think it's very tough to make that case. Um, so uh, does that does that help at all? Um, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, uh, uh, I don't think that's really what I was uh, suggesti- suggesting per se. Um, oh, sorry. I, I, let me make sure I get what you're suggesting correctly. Oh, no, that's okay. It's, uh, it was more just a curiosity, um, I guess, between the role of IQ and success in a way. Uh, like, I would never really suggest that, you know, abuse is a way to lead to genius per se, but um, uh, that IQ isn't necessarily like a one-to-one with um uh, success or something along those lines. Right. 
So, I mean, I think whatever we can do to make people um, smarter, I think we will end up with a better world. I mean, intelligence is one of these things that lets you control impulse, right? Uh, and, you know, they've done those experiments, which I've talked about in the show before, where they say to kids, um, I'll give you one marshmallow now and you can eat it. Or if I come back in 15 minutes and there's still a marshmallow here, then um, you can have two, right? So can you defer gratification? And it does take some intelligence to uh, defer gratification. And so I do think that uh, intelligence will help us. And again, this is not to say that all intelligent people defer gratification and so on, but there is, I think, a reasonable tendency that way. So um, I think whatever we can do to increase people's intelligence, um, we can... You know, why do some people uh, give up uh, difficult, like crazy belief systems? Uh, well, I think it's because they um, they recognize that those belief systems are destructive and, and difficult and dangerous for them and bad for them and so on. And other people don't uh, give up those belief systems. And is it all to do with intelligence? I think it does, right? I mean... Because the, 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 the trauma of giving up an irrational belief system is considerable, right? It's very painful and very difficult. And giving up destructive relationships uh, is also uh, highly traumatic. And so why would, uh, why would people do it? Well, they would do it because uh, they recognize that the payoff is worth it. And um, recognizing when the payoff is worth, worth it is one of sort of the fundamental um, capacities of, of intelligence, right? So uh, I'm, I'm very keen on uh, uh, upping the IQ of the planet, which is why I sort of try and propose things over and over again that uh, uh, really help with that. So, uh, you know, whether that will make everyone a genius, well, statistically, uh, no, <laughs> it certainly won't. But uh, I think it would really help to um, make the world uh, able to put aside immediate stressors and focus on long-term benefits if that helps okay yeah I, I can understand that that makes sense um there's a second question i had too that went, went with that um and i was just curious uh if you had like um any advice for people who went through abuse and trauma to uh um that would help them i don't know uh get through some of their issues get to being more productive things of that sort Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the number one is uh, uh, don't don't expose yourself to more. You know, I think that's, you know, that's, you know, for some people, I guess this is controversial, but it's not for anyone with half a brain. Right. I mean, you, you, you know, if you want to say, well, how do I get over the the stress of, of being in combat? Well, you know, the first thing to do is to not be in combat. Right. I mean, the army does that. I mean, if if you somebody's freaking out because of PTSD, uh, I think they don't consider treating them at least ever since the First World War, they wouldn't consider treating them um, absent actually getting them out of the combat situation, right? So uh, if you are, if you have had a traumatic history, then uh, you want to not be traumatized as much as possible, right? Which means if there are people around who are traumatizing you, then you need to either get them to stop traumatizing you or you need to not be around those people at least for a while. And um, that's first and foremost. Now, of course, people who are traumatic to others don't like that advice for obvious reasons and that they want to continue to be able to traumatize others because that's their fixed way of being or their habit or whatever you want to call it. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, that to me is a very, very key part uh, of uh, stopping. Uh, you know, how do you stop the effects of trauma? Well, uh, stop exposing yourself to trauma would be a pretty good first start. And that's a very big task. Uh, you know, finding non-traumatized people in the world is, uh, well, what do you think? A bit of a challenge sometimes? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And I think, I think I mean, there's a, uh, to that also, um, uh, to people who are exposed to trauma or in traumatic situations, uh, and I think I can speak to this personally, um, it, it sometimes it's even hard to recognize that the trauma is there. Like when it becomes just your your regular, like if, if you grew up in an environment, that just becomes your environment. It's hard to see uh, beyond that until maybe you can Agreed, experience yeah. beyond that. And that's why you need to surround, Not so the first thing is get get away from traumatizing people, right? I mean, that's that to me is the 101. Now, the uh, the other part of that is get uh, non-traumatic people around you, right? Non-traumatized people around you, you know, they can they can help watch your back, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's quite important. So um, keep those kinds of things going, and I think you'll be uh, you know well on your way, right? Less <laughs> less trauma, more non-trauma, right? Because you need yeah. people around you who can tell you. Oh yeah, you know she's hot, but <laughs> but she's crazy or whatever, right? Yeah. And uh, especially because you know we have the biological urge to reproduce with our initial clan, right? Uh, if you if you are raised crazy, you're going to want to bang crazy. Uh, I say this, you know, <laughs> not in, uh, in in abstract sense, right? Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, you know, it's not like you know that uh, stupid is as stupid does from Forrest Gump. It's like nope, crazy is as crazy bangs and. Uh, uh, or crazy bangs as crazy is probably a better way of putting it, but uh, that stuff is um, important as well because uh, our uh, our sexual uh, predilections, uh, if we're raised by crazy, well, our genes don't care about crazy. They care about, you know, reproducing whatever came before, and that is, um, uh, that's very tough for us because, you know, our penis is going to pull us into the crazy hole at the same time as our brain is going to want to make us... Uh, uh, stay away from it, right? So, uh, <laughs> having people around who can remind you of that, uh, I think, is, uh, is is very important. Uh, yeah, I can agree to that, and I think of uh, personally. Friends don't let friends get dignapped. That's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> I think I've sur- I've uh, personally surrounded myself with uh, uh, or I'm in the right direction, I guess you could say. Good. All right. Well, thanks very much. Keep us posted, and uh, thanks so much, everyone, of course, for calling in and for sharing your thoughts. In this, I believe, the most essential conversation in the planet and perhaps for all time. So uh, thanks, everyone, so much. Please, of course, drop by and, uh, you know, show your support. Be our bra. That's really what I'm trying to say. Uh, Show your support for the show, for the conversation. And uh, you can do that, of course, by going to freedomainradio.com slash donate and signing up for a Wii subscription or we take some some, uh, electronic currency. Uh, or, you know, good old fiat currency, you know, it's going to toast anyway. So, you know, turn it into some philosophy before it loses its value. That's my suggestion. (laughs) Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you soon.